Heavy Hops is a Scorched Tundra production. You can access all our episodes with detailed show notes and information about upcoming events by visiting scorchedtundra.com slash heavy hops. Be sure to follow us on your preferred social media platform. Subscribe, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access podcasts. Thanks for supporting us and enjoy the show. It was like every single barrel was a money barrel. They were all better than pretty much all the barrels from previous vintages. Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name's Alexi. Joining us this week are Jim Seebeck and Marty Scott, brewmaster and barrel program lead, respectively, at Revolution Brewing in Chicago. The brewery's Deep Wood series of barrel-aged beers has garnered the attention of drinkers of these time and ingredient-intensive styles. Balance, Jim and Marty argue, as perceived during the sensory process and calculated in analysis, is central to the challenge of achieving consistency, complexity, and conveyance of barrel expression for which their Deep Woods beers are known. We discuss how sourcing barrels, blending, patience, nimbleness, luck, and ability to lean on their knowledge reservoir, that of the largest independently owned craft brewery in Illinois, also play a role. Jim and Marty walk us through a number of their barrel-aged beers, sharing insights into their construction, tasting notes, and stories. A list of beers we taste and discuss is available in the episode notes. Let's dive and get heavy. Jim, Marty, welcome to Heavy Hops. It's a pleasure having you guys here today. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah. We've been really looking forward to uh, trying some of these uh, well-known, sought-after, and enjoyable barrel-aged beers. But before we uh, jump into some of those, let's talk a little bit about how you two kind of found craft beer. I'll start with you, Jim. How did you kind of get into uh, drinking craft beer and then making it? Well, it was really when I was in... I'd say my last year of high school, and then as I got into college, I really got more interested in beer and tasting different kinds of beer. Whenever we would go to a party in high school, we'd always try to find some cool, unique import beers or uh, see what was new at the store. I took the liberty of going in and just purchasing it. No fake idea or anything. I just kind of rolled the dice. I'm like, "Ah, I want to go get some beer. So I just went in there and grabbed it, paid for it. (laughs) <laughs> but uh, yeah, so, uh, but when I was actually in college is when I really got serious about craft beer and started homebrewing. And when I was homebrewing, that's where I really got involved in tasting beers from different countries, different styles. Like I really got into uh, beers from England, like stouts and porters. And here in the Midwest, we're just like in the breadbasket of such like great porter stout breweries like Bell's was a huge influence on me. Uh, the Goose Island Brew Pub was where I really kind of cut my teeth on drinking and learning about English styles of beer. I mean, they brewed all kinds of different styles there, not only English, but Belgian. Really got interested in tasting uh, some barrel-aged beers there, like because they were really, in my, as far as I know, the first people to put uh, Imperial Stout in a barrel and I remember my buddy and I would always go there and we would because uh, we loved drinking the Imperial Stout but then we had heard that they were going to be aging it in a bourbon barrel and we were just like blown away by that so that was a really cool experience and when I graduated I went to Loyola University studied business uh, and when I graduated I was just kind of looking and you know I was drinking one of my home brews and I was just like you know I'm really way more interested in this 
than I am and what I studied in school. And I really felt that, you know, there's, it's never a bad thing to have a business background or a business degree, but I'm going to pursue. I wanted to go to the Siebel Institute, which just happened to be here in Chicago, which was very, very lucky for me because it was about maybe an hour drive from my house. So I remember telling my parents, they were pretty stoked that I was that I had just graduated with a business degree. I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm really thinking about uh, pursuing uh, brewing beer. And they, they kind of <laughs> looked at me and uh, I don't think they really knew what that meant or if there was an opportunity for a career in that. And back then there weren't a lot of opportunities and a lot of people kind of, when you tell them you were gonna be a brewer, you wanted to be a brewer, they kind of looked at you like you were crazy, you know? <laughs> And I remember actually even going to Siebel and one, one uh, Christopher Burt, who was the uh, registrar there, and uh, he was a professor as well, but he uh, showed me around and it's, they weren't very encouraging to even like really get involved in brewing there. They're just like, yeah, you know, you're not going to make a lot of money. It's going to be a lot of hard work. We just want to be very, very upfront with you that this is going to be a, it's going to be a tough road and, you know, it may work out great. It may not. But we just don't want to guarantee, don't think like you're going to come here and learn how to brew beer and then you know, six months later you're going to be rich. So they wanted to be very realistic about it. And, uh, you know, some of the courses I took there, I did the, the two-week operation or the one-week operations course, which is really great because that's when you actually got to see what's going on in a brewery. Because a lot of times when people drink beer, they really don't know how it's made. Uh, I think sometimes people think it comes from a magic fountain in the ground but uh, they don't understand how much hard work goes into it uh, in, in so many respects to get to that final glass of beer or bottle of beer. Uh, so the operations course was really great. And I think it really separated the people that wanted to really had a love for brewing because they're like, yes, this is great. And then you could see some other people like, nah, this is not, not for me. So that was great. But going to school at Siebel was really, really great here in Chicago, and it was a great experience. And that's where I actually met Nick Floyd, and that was back in 95, because he was working as the head brewer at uh, an old school brewery in Berwyn and Westmont called the Wine Keller. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. It's, it's uh, no longer in business, but uh, they were around for a very long time. And that was right when he was getting ready to start planning is Three Floyds Brewery, and the first one was, the first Three Floyds Brewery was actually in North Hammond, and I remember, I'm like, man, that's cool, you're going to be starting a brewery, and he's like, yeah, it's going to be in Hammond, I'm like, Hammond, California, and he's like, no, Hammond, Indiana, and I was like, wow, that's really cool, because I lived in Calumet City, and I was like literally 20 minutes away from there, so it was like very, very fortunate for me. But we became friends, really good friends, and we used to go to the map room and, and drink beers a lot, and you know, we would taste beers and we're just like, wow, you know, these are great, but they're just not hoppy enough. And I remember every time he would drink something, he's just like, nope, not hoppy enough, not bitter enough, <laughs> not enough hop aroma. So he definitely had a, a serious passion for hops and wanted to really create some super hoppy beers. So from the wine color, I went and started working at Goose Island uh, on Fulton Street. That was right when they opened up their brewery there. So He's like, I'm going to be leaving to do my thing and I'm going to start my brewery. And I told him, you know, I'm going to I'm going to go work on the night shift at Goose Island. So it was a great way to get my foot in the door. And because I had a serious love for the company and the beers that that they made. So I started working there on the night shift in I think it was December of 1995 and worked there for five years. 
uh, became great friends with uh, Greg Hall, respect him tremendously, a great brewer, super progressive, super knowledgeable about uh, Belgian beer styles and the English beer styles. I mean, he's uh, one of the best authorities on those that I can really think of as far as not only brewing them, but knowing them and traveling to those breweries, which is really cool. So I worked there for five years, and that was right when uh, Nick and uh, Three Floyds was going to be moving their brewery to Munster, Indiana, and they had a little 15-barrel system in there, and they were still real small scale. So I went to work there. I'm like, he's like, I, you know, finally have the ability to, to bring you on. So I went and worked there uh, from 2000 and to 2006, and then uh, Matt Brindelson, who was the brewmaster at uh, – at Goose Island when I was there, excuse me, he was the head brewer, uh, Greg Hall was the brewmaster, but Matt was the head brewer at, at Goose Island and we became really good friends and he went out to California and he was working at the company called Slow Brew, which ended up being bought by Firestone, uh, Andrew, or excuse me, yeah, Firestone Walker. They ended up purchasing Slow Brew and then Matt, ended, he's like, yeah, I'm not working at Slow Brew anymore. He's like, yeah, I'm, I'm working for Firestone Walker. I'm like, oh, that's cool. I, I'm not familiar with the brewery because they were just very small at the point. At that point, uh, I think they were maybe even brewing like 10 to 15,000 barrels. So I went out there and I worked at Firestone from 2006 until 2008. Working with him was great again because we, you know, we had a serious passion for brewing. We loved to talk beer and brewing itself. Uh, and I actually had an opportunity when I was working at Three Floyds. We went out and uh, did a collaboration beer with Matt where we, uh, we brewed a strong barley wine, American-style barley wine. And the cool thing about this was we threw two whole bales of whole hops in the water ton. So while we were boiling this barley wine in the uh, brew kettle, we were just, lo- Matt and I were loading all of these hops into the water ton because we were basically using it as a big hop strainer which was really cool. So when we were done boiling the wort, we pumped it back into the lauder ton and hydrated those hops with the rakes. And what it did was just all the hops soaked up all that beer and infused all the nice aroma oils in, into the beer, or into the wort, excuse me. And then we sent the wort from the lauder ton through the heat exchanger into the fermentation tank. And this beer was just like the craziest combination of like really sweet, caramely malt flavors nice bitterness, but it just had these like levels of floral and citrusiness that were just like really, really amazing. So that was a cool opportunity. Learned a lot about barrels out there as well. Learned a lot about wine, actually helped a friend make some wine. And one of the cool things was the Firestone Union out there. Every week when they brewed double barrel ale, they would fill 42 wine barrels with this high Kreuzener at the peak of fermentation, double barrel ale or DBA as we called it. And then that would ferment in those barrels for seven days. And then the following Thursday, those barrels would get emptied. They would get pushed into what they call the oak tank. And that held all the oak fermented uh, DBA. And then those barrels would get hot rinsed and sanitized and filled again on that following Friday. So every week, 42 of those got filled. And every week, the oldest barrel would get taken out of circulation. And then there would be a new one that would, that would go in. So that was a really cool thing to see. And actually with the double barrel ale, people didn't believe it sometimes when I would tell them, but there was a small percentage of that beer that actually, of the oak fermented double barrel ale that is in the the finished product. I think it was like 5% 
when I was there. So when we were filtering beer, we'd take the total amount of beer that we need, and then we would calculate 5% of that, and we would send that out of the oak tank and then finish filtering the, the rest of the DBA on top of it. So that was really cool. So it was a great learning experience and great piece of, or a great place in the world. If you've uh, ever been out there, it's truly amazing. Those are an uh, interesting uh, group of people to have uh, worked with and that was really sort of an interesting point in the sort of world of Chicago beer too because it really sort of generated, you know, a class of people that went through Siebel such as yourself and uh, Matt Brunelson, Nick, and then ended up kind of going out and doing great things in the world. Absolutely. Three Floyds is a brewery that's also known for its uh, adherence and interest in heavy music. Was that a world that you uh, voluntarily uh, <laughs> were indoctrinated into as well? Uh, yeah, you know, I, I've always been into uh, metal music. I mean, from the time I th I'd say when I was in high school and I was really more of the big four guy myself, like Metallica, Megadeth, uh, Anthrax, and Slayer were really my, my favorites, like my core. I think that a lot of times people look at me and they don't think that I, I'm a brewer because I don't have a beard and I, I don't have a lot of tattoos. So they might not necessarily uh, say, oh, oh, that guy's a brewer. I've been uh, mistaken for like salesman, attorney, <laughs> different things like that, but I truly am a brewer. But uh, yeah, no, we like our metal music and we like it loud. You pop in the brewery and you'll hear some loud music. Uh, not only loud music, but at very high decibels as well. And I, I just think that metal music pairs with uh, craft beer. And, you know, we, we like to mix it up though too. You, sometimes you'll hear some hollow notes and, you know, right after that, you'll hear uh, Rain and Blood, you know. So <laughs> we, we like to keep it fresh and, and mix it up. But yeah, there's a, there's a great deal of metal music that's played at Floyd's for sure, and uh, at Revolution, and mm -hmm. oh, pretty much every brewery, I would say. You know, you have some breweries that are, uh, that they love their Grateful Dead and they love their fish, and you know, we we sprinkle a little of that in as well. But I could only handle so much of that, and then you know, I, I got to get some Van Halen going or some Metallica, so mm -hmm. or some Motorhead too. Let's not forget. Let me. Yeah, and so for you, uh, Marty, do you think a young Marty would have uh, been at the same metal show that uh, Jim had been in the early aughts in Chicago? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, without a doubt. Uh, my origin story into craft brewing is the same as my origin story into to Rev. It's the only brewery I've ever worked for. I was on campus at Eastern Illinois University in you know, the early aughts, and I saw uh, what what I presumed had to have been the only other metalhead on campus walking into the physical science building in a black label society shirt, <laughs> and I was on my way uh, across the street to the to the bar that was just off campus called Marty's for my usual after class appointment. There, I double backed and chased this guy down. Uh, he's like, "Nice shirt, dude!" And that uh, that dude turned out to be Paul Doberstein, who I call Fozzie Bear. What's up, Fozzie? If you're listening. And he introduced me to his great big Polish family. And uh, what I learned about his great big Polish family was that if you were friends with any of the cousins, you were as good as a cousin yourself. And one of his actual cousins was Michelle Foyk uh, from formerly of Goose Island, who was uh, a co-founder at Revolution with Jim and Josh Deeth. 
you know, after, after college, I stayed in touch with all those kids and, uh, you know, became part of the family. You know, one day I hear Michelle is, uh, opening up revolution. This is, um, probably November, December of 20 or 2009. And uh, I went in and I, I saw the space just a few weeks before they opened. I think, uh, Eugene Porter, Cross of Gold, and maybe Antihero were on tap, um, before opening and, uh, saw the space and immediately went home and homebrewed a Porter. Uh, based on Eugene, knowing nothing about the recipe or anything. A few months later, I went to Siebel and uh, it was in April of 2010. Uh, the brew pub had opened in February of 2010. Ray Daniels, uh, now with the Cicerone program, uh, was standing in front of the class telling us all, oh, make sure, you know, if you're going to take lunch, you're going to have a, you know, a, a good meal while you're in town as most people are traveling from all over the world. Go over to Revolution. I'm like, I know Revolution. So I, I take a couple of people over there and we see Michelle and she asked Jim shortly there after if I could come observe a brew day. And that was in April of 2010. It was like right after Siebel, or maybe it was like over the weekend between the two weeks of Siebel for me. And uh, I, I spent a morning and afternoon just probably bugging the snot out of Jim Seaback with just incessant questions uh, about brewing and beer. Uh, we were brewing a coup de gras, which was uh, an imperial version of coup d'etat with cardamom. And uh, I remember a lot about that brew day. But what I cherish most about is how much time we were actually just bullshitting about heavy metal. I met somebody who I thought well, was a lot like me, you know, a little bit older and way the heck more experienced, you know. But I, I, I saw somebody that I knew I could get along with. A couple months pass and uh, Michelle goes, oh, yeah, Jim said you can come back and brew anytime you want. So then uh, I started traveling from Buffalo Grove, where I was living at the time, to go volunteer at, at Rev, mostly on the weekends. And that picked up with frequency over time. And a little over a year and a quarter or so, I, I got hired on as a, as a waiter uh, when they opened up the upstairs of the, of the restaurant, the Brewer's Lounge. So I was no longer allowed to brew for free, which was great. Uh, so I got two days a week brewing uh, with Jim and Maddie Kemp, employee number one, who's also a, an encyclopedia of heavy metal and, and rock and roll knowledge. Introduced me to probably 20% of the rad bands that I listen to today uh, over the last uh, 11 years or so. And uh, yeah, I was, I was waiting tables to make rent three days a week and I was brewing for next to nothing for the other two. And uh, then the next 11 years happened. It's been pretty rad. Yeah. As far as sort of revolution goes, we saw from the beginning out of the brew pub on Milwaukee, things sort of emerge as a core lineup with a variety of different beers in that and then a seasonal model. And over time, as the market has sort of changed and Rev has also scaled up and sort of found its uh, its identity and what the audience uh, has also been interested in, the lineup is built around hoppy beers with a number of different sort of seasonal or once a year formats, one of which is the Deep Wood series, which we're going to dive into quite a bit today. And so I want to know a little bit about the origin of the Deep Wood series and these barrel-aged beers. How did it sort Sort of get started for you, Jim, and then for you, Marty. Uh, you know, how did you find your way into that world? Well, how we started aging beer in barrels at uh, Revolution was at the brew pub when we would brew a strong batch of beer, like a say a barley wine or an imperial stout. A lot of times we would just have too much beer because like a, a straight barley wine or an imperial stout that you're serving in a small snifter will just be on tap forever. 
because you know you have say if you do a 10 barrel batch i mean that's a lot of beer so josh and i were looking at it and we're like you know we don't want to tie up this tank for six months pouring little snifters of barley wine it's like what we could do to reduce the level of beer in the tank is we could fill two or three or four barrels and that would leave us with like two or three barrels of beer left that we could go through pretty quickly because we always wanted to be brewing more beer or we had more beer already in fermenters that was done and ready to go and we were looking for a home for it. So as soon as those serving vessels that are in the cooler open up, then we're able to move more beer in there and put another beer on tap. So uh, it really kind of materialized out of necessity. Plus we wanted to always give the beer some time because what we found is when you brew these really big, strong beers, it really takes some time for them to develop and smooth out. And what we were finding is we were always looking to empty a fermenter and a serving vessel. So we would, when the beer was done fermenting, we would crash cool it and we would find it to clarify the beer, but then it would be going to the serving cooler within the next week, probably where we, in a perfect world, we'd like to let it sit in the fermenter for two months if we could just to kind of smooth out and round out. So what we were finding is when we were brewing these big strong beers, they were going on tap pretty quickly and they were kind of hot. They were, weren't cut, you know, quite complete yet. Just, they didn't have enough time. So when you have the opportunity to um, age them in a barrel, then you can really build in that time. And we want to really sit in a barrel and age for, we'd love to give it at least a year. And Marty and I, it's always been our dream to really, you know, even go beyond that two, three, four years and just really see how these beers change and develop. But really in, in the beginning, it was at the brew pub and it was, we, we also wanted to have some barrel aged beers on tap and it was hard because we didn't have the time to let them sit for a full year. We would do like three months and it's like, come on, we got to get this beer on tap. So finally, when we opened Kedzie and we had a bigger brew system and we were able to fill so many barrels more than we needed, which was always our plan. It's like in Marty's and I and Josh's dream was always to brew more and have carryover and let this beer sit and develop and change and really, really get interesting and, and super deep in flavor and aroma. And once we really opened Kedzie and started brewing more beer, that's where we really had the opportunity to give these beers the, the time they deserve. And then that really leads, as Marty will probably tell you, it leads to a lot of different products down the line where we're double barrel aging beer and extended aging beer and just creating some really, really cool flavors and aromas without even sometimes adding any kind of adjuncts. We're just pulling all the character out of the oxidation of the malt sugars and from the barrel itself. Yeah, so uh, for you, Marty, working on Milwaukee Avenue and then switching over to Kedzie, what styles and what sort of spirit barrel pairings were exciting for you uh, for you originally? Well, it was it was really intimidating. Uh, I didn't know diddly squat about barrels or barrel aging uh, when I was working at uh, at the brew pub in Milwaukee. But it was April or May of 2012 when we began producing beer over at Kedzie, and once we had uh, enough beers on tap that we could open up our tap room and, and sustain the business over there, uh, and also supplement the variety of beers we had available at the brew pub, uh, we started filling barrels at Kedzie. There were like six full-time people at Kedzie at that point. Uh, there might have been a couple more, but on the production side, it was Jim and Maddie, and they were doing pretty much all of the real production. Uh, and I came in as a support role. I was cleaning kegs, filling kegs, rinsing bright tanks, running the packaging line. But uh, when barrel 
work came up, it was on top of everything else that was going on. And Jim was working, you know, 12, 14 hour, 16 hour days, pretty typically. Maddie likewise was, was putting in some really long shifts. So when barrels came on, um, there needed to be a, an outlet for that work. And uh, I stayed with Jim filling barrels every, every night that uh, we had barrels to fill. I remember when, uh, one of the first times we were doing it, we had way more yield than we thought. We wound up having to keg a bunch of beer off and then go back into barrels. That was a, we got out of the brewery super, super late. But after doing a, a season of just kind of supporting Jim during uh, his barrel endeavors, uh, he kind of asked me if I wanted to take lead on the, the program. Yeah, absolutely. At that point, again, I was, I was cleaning kegs and filling kegs and rinsing bright tanks. You know, still great work. Uh, you know, most jobs in a brewery are, are pretty rad if you like beer, but uh, I, I didn't really have a creative outlet. And I, I did, at that point, I hadn't really earned one either. When, when Jim kind of handed me the keys to it, I was basically executing the plan and what I had observed uh, from the previous year. As I had to mop more and I had to apologize more for this, that, and the other being wrong, I started getting some tighter controls and started second-guessing everything and really analyzing everything we were doing. Uh, we're still doing that. It's it's an integral part of our process is continuous improvement. You know, we are never going to be happy. And uh, the, the beer started getting better. We started losing fewer and fewer to infection, which helped with that uh, carryover that Jim mentioned. Uh, and we started, you know, being kind of inundated with his old beer and just seeing how it performed next to its, you know, one year younger brothers and sisters, you know, the, the batch from the previous year, uh, we started to, to notice a couple of patterns and especially so with the, the paler varieties, the straight jacket, uh, which is the only beer that we've ever produced in every vintage of the Deepwood series. Uh, and that started in 2012, uh, as well as the porters, uh, the mean gene, bean gene, blue gene, that kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, those beers in not great barrels that we were sourcing had a tendency to, to go bad. Uh, there, there was precious little environmental control. I was getting sick and tired to answering for things that I was just doing, how I was kind of shown, you know, I, and, and I inherited a lot of these processes, you know, losing barrels in this environment was just kind of the norm, but it always felt like I was about to get fired anytime I had to deliver that bad news. And I desperately didn't want to lose this job. Just little tiny improvements uh, year after year after year after year. Uh, and just looking at data, you know, numbers don't lie. And if, if you do a good job designing these systems, you can trust numbers to, you know, save your life, put you on the moon, whatever you want, numbers will do it as long as you're using good numbers. So yeah, it was just a lot of analytics and uh, a whole lot of apologizing with my hat in hand and uh, learning those hard lessons. Mm -hmm. And uh, here we are. Well, we've got a couple beers in front of us. We have the same beer, two different years, uh, the Deeds Tar, the uh, barrel-aged Imperial Oatmeal Stout. Uh, that may be most widely known. We have a 2016 and a 2020, and we can kind of sip and enjoy these and um, kind of maybe use them as a prism for this next question here. You kind of related to learning over time and considering your sources for your barrels. So what are some of the differences that we may see in a vintage uh, such as 2016 from the source of the wood, because the wood is an important part of the profile of this beer, right? You have obviously the construction of the base beer, but the wood is also important on account of the amount of time that you're lending it. So talking about the sourcing and how that may sort of have has changed over time, how do you look at the sourcing and how has that changed? 
That's an excellent question. Uh, yeah, the, the barrel character is uh, paramount to these beers. You know, it's a huge investment in time and resources and space to put beer into barrels and take it out not infected uh, a year or two, three or four or five years later. So yeah, you should know that it was in a barrel. We want the barrels to do their fair share of the work here. Uh, these are priced as premium beverages. Uh, they've got super high octane ABV levels. You know, the, the, the barrel really needs to be present for us. In the beginning, and I, I didn't know any better, I was, I was a greenhorn, uh, but to my perception, there was really only one person that people were getting barrels from one, one company, and I won't name them because we were losing so much beer uh, in those barrels. All likelihood is that they were rinsed by the distillers to try to get more alcohol out of the wood and then what we were getting were vessels that were not always microbiologically secure. And you start putting seven, seven and a half, eight percent porters in them and then aging them without temperature control. And you're going to have a bad time sometimes. There was a point, and I don't remember what year it was. Now we get almost exclusively from a single company in Nebraska, uh, in Lincoln, Nebraska, um, Dr. Ben at uh, Midwest Barrel Company. As soon as he told me that all of the barrels he would supply me were guaranteed not rinsed, that was all I needed you know, to, to never have to worry about infection rates like that again. And also we started putting only beer that was north of 10 ABV into barrels. Uh, so the Eugene stopped going to lumber and we made a stout or at least we scaled up the stout. And then we learned that younger barrels, really, uh, for what we want, are so much more expressive than these old storied, or what we call cool story bro barrels. You know, a lot of these bourbon barrels that are, you know, 15, 18, 23 years old, damn right, cool story, great bourbons. But uh, the reason that a 23-year-old bourbon is so much more expressive than a 10-year-old bourbon isn't just because of oak extraction, it's through evaporation and the concentration of those flavors. That barrel has pretty much given up the ghost by the time it gets to the brewer. So whatever oak is left in that barrel is actually in the liquid itself. And you get that pretty quick or you extract, you extract that into the beer pretty quick. Um, so after that, it's all about development it's about development of the, the malt structures itself with these younger barrels. However, when we're producing or when we're aging for, you know, routinely 18, 24, 36, 48 months, a younger barrel will develop along with the beverage that entire time. It's so much more time dynamic uh, than one of these old cool story barrels. Uh, and they're so much more reasonably priced too, because they're just not as sexy. Um, but to someone who's not looking to put beer in a barrel for a couple of months and get your kicks and, you know, market it as, you know, XYZ uh, reserve barrel, you know, it offers us an opportunity to produce really barrel forward beers that have a lot of malt dynamics um, and we can just balance them. Um, Jim Seaback's beers are balanced. And that was one of the first lessons I learned, not just from Jim, but from Michelle Foyk, from Josh Deeth, from Maddie Kemp, uh, from Jonathan Cutler. You name it. If I talk to them about Jim Seaback, the word balance came up somewhere in that conversation. We just try to make the most expressive flavor and aroma forward beers possible and as often as possible leaning on the base beer and the barrel and time. And what we found is, yeah, you can't be infecting barrels uh, or you can't be infecting beer with bad barrels, but it's so much more important to have a good barrel than just a good story. And uh, for you, Jim, when you're kind of thinking about 
the construction of these beers themselves. You're considering the amount of time that they're in the wood and what happens in the wood. How are you looking at the construction of the base beer for, say, uh, Distar? And is the beer that went into wood different 2016 to the 2020, for example? The recipe for Distar has remained pretty consistent over the years. It's uh, really utilizing some wonderful malts from Thomas Fawcett's Maltery in England. Uh, We use their roasted barley, their black malt, we use some dark crystal malt, and we also use malted oats and flaked oats in this beer. The malted oats actually have the husks still on on the kernel, so it actually gives the grain bed some structure because when there's a lot of dark malt and flaked oats in there, the mash can get pretty sticky and gummy and there's a lot of dark malt so it tends to get like a little dark silt almost in there which kind of wants to compact the grain bed and restrict flow of the wort through the grain bed and so you get lower extraction and you don't get as much sugar extraction from the malt. Not only is the oat malt really providing texture but it's also providing some structure in the grain bed as well but over the years what we have done is we've increased the starting gravity and then the uh, we've lowered the I'd say we finishing gravity is probably about eight or nine Play-Doh right around there for some of our D-Stars. It really depends what, what product we're going to be brewing this beer for. Marty and I have really kind of got together on this and really taken the base beer and kind of changed it depending on what beer is going to be going or is going to be coming out of the barrel. So for anything we're going to be adding some sweetness back to, we'll shoot for a drier version of D-Star. Or if something's going to be barrel-aged for or go into two barrels, Uh, and have extended time, what we'll do is we'll brew that beer starting for a higher starting gravity, and then it'll finish a little higher as well and have more malt character, more sweetness, a little more structure to it. And it could handle the large quantity of alcohol that's not only in the beer itself, but that's going to come out of the barrel as well. Because some of these beers that we've barrel aged in, in two barrels I mean, they're coming out, what, 16%, Marty? 16, 17%? Yeah, I'd be alarmed if it was lower than 16. We were tasting some QC lab today doing some bench topping, and the base we were working with was about 16.5 ABV on a double-barrel barley wine. But we've, we've seen 18, 17. So over the years, we've really gotten crafty and really are kind of brewing specifically, targeting specific products. A lot of times, like if we brew a D-Star, something that's drier, that we're going to be adding some, say, cherry puree to or raspberry puree, that beer would not be really suitable. I wouldn't want to take that straight from stainless and package it and drink it. So it would just be a little rough around the edges. It'd be high in alcohol. It'd be a little thinner and drier, but it's perfect when you're adding some sweetness back to it. So a lot of these beers that we brew and design to go into barrel wouldn't necessarily be a standalone product that we would want to sell if it was straight from stainless steel. So we're really kind of engineering and brewing these beers specifically for specific products. Sure. And uh, that kind of begs some of the question about IBU and bitterness that goes into some of these beers, because I think some of the conventional wisdom that people have stated is that they want to send the beer in with a higher bitterness level over time. And you definitely taste that when you have an opportunity to drink some of those, like the base beer fresh 
uh, and it sometimes can lead to relatively unpalatable experience. So what I've noticed in kind of looking at the specs of a number of your barrel-aged beers is that your IBU is a little bit lower comparatively. How did you kind of come to that conclusion outside of the stylistic tendency of like, obviously you don't want huge IBU in an English-style barley wine, but what role does uh, bitterness or a lower bitterness in the case of your beers play? That's a great question. Um, I think really it comes down to drinkability and balance, like Marty was touching upon, and just sensory evaluation of our, our finished product. When you're coupling a beer that has an ABV range of 14 to 17% alcohol by volume, and you have all this dark malt that is in there, which tends to have astringency as well. So when you're adding up the alcohol, the astringency from dark malt, and then a super high IBU rate, it ends up being kind of an un pleasant thing in your mouth, really. It's just a little rude and aggressive. And we don't want to have to tell people to, that they have to age their beer for 10 years before you can drink it. Because once you put beer in a package, I mean, that beer should be ready to go and it should you shouldn't have to sit on it for 12 years waiting for the iso-alpha acids to uh, degrade down to where it's finally smooth. We've always wanted things to be ready to drink right off the bat. We always tell people when we take it out of the barrel and put it in a package, we intend on you drinking it ASAP because we've determined it ready to go. Um, and it's great if you want to hang on to it and see how it develops over time. But at that time, we're saying this beer is it's ready to go. And we want it to be drinkable and we don't want it to be a rude, aggressive experience for our, our customers or ourselves either. A lot of times when we, when we make beers, we're a little selfish because we want to brew beers we like to drink and we want to have the IBUs and the alcohol percentage and everything we're always striving for that balance. And it's like something we always kind of fall back to and talk about. And we kind of, you know, use the word until it's gonna, you know, be buried in the ground. But uh, it's super important to make a very pleasant drinking experience. And, you know, we look at styles of beer, whether it's a English mild ale or it's a double barrel aged barley wine, we want it to still be pleasant drinking experience. We want it to have balance and we want it to have nice aromatics. We want it to be clear. We want the head to be nice on the beer. We we call that kind of the full package. We want it to be, you know, a well-rounded product and a very pleasant drinking experience. I think that's one thing that strikes me about being able to try these, uh, the 2016 and then the 2020 side by side is that all of the characteristics that are most enhanced in the 2020, whether it's like the roast quality, whether it's the chocolate notes, whether it's alcohol intensity, are all minimized in an equal extent in the 2016. And I think that you don't always see that with barrel-aged beers sometimes. Some of those components of the calculus that makes the aroma and makes the flavor get out of whack. And I think for some of the reasons you've stated, the restraint in bitterness in the IBU of the base beer makes a big difference because of the roast redundancy of bitterness and then the hop redundancy too. Getting a little more into some of the math as you alluded to, Marty, how do you sort of measure your consistency over time and how do you take these things that to a consumer may seem rather esoteric maybe someone imagines you dancing around a bunch of barrels sip here sip here and um but there's a lot of science to it because there's a shitload of money and inventory there and there's a lot of responsibility how do you uh how do you create metrics uh to substantiate this work Excellent question. So we devised a metric uh, that was actually a relationship going off of IBUs that could tell us about balance. 
because in an IPA or a pale ale, you have a certain amount of residual sugar you're aiming for, and you've got a certain IBU target you're aiming for. But in these English styles, as they age and age and age and age, IBUs for us, I don't even think about IBUs. Most of the time when we have to submit these beers for competitions or festivals, somebody wants to know how many IBUs are in it. Most of the time you just pull a number out of your backside because it doesn't matter. The bitterness and what, what gives the these beers balance isn't hot bitterness, it's oak tannin and it's ABV, essentially. You know, that's what really slows you down from drinking the sugar water is how much hooch is in it. So as we've gone, we've tried to maximize our ABV across the board for all of our barrel beers. And we have a relationship of uh, a certain amount of sugar for every unit of ABV. Um, so these, these beers start their fermentation in a state of sugar toxicity, which is way sugary wort, and the yeast doesn't like that too much. And it finishes its fermentation in a state of alcohol toxicity. So it's unhappy the entire time. And it's very difficult to get unhappy yeast to behave exactly like you tell it to. So these present us with issues because we can have beers that don't ferment out completely and they wind up being way sweeter than we intend them to be. Conversely, we have beers that may stall out and we'll hit it with some extra enzyme. And instead of landing happily at five Play-Doh or 5% sugar, it's going all the way down to like two or one. And that's not great either. So what we've done is we've uh, designed that variance into the system itself. And we intentionally make beers that are too dry to drink and we make beers that are too sweet to drink. Then we see where they land. And from there, we determine, okay, we want 40% from the dry lot and 60% from the sweet lot. And there could be, you know, seven, eight, nine different lots or components or batches uh, going into these beers, especially the ones that we release at higher volume where one or two batches isn't going to cut it. That's your straight jackets and your D-stars. We find out how dry and how sweet our components are going to be. And then we blend them back to have a relationship of sugar and alcohol for balance. So uh, for instance, for D-star, what we call the balance value, uh, if you take finishing gravity, divide it by alcohol by volume, uh, you should have 0.45 units of sugar for every unit of alcohol. We just blend them back together with that X and Y relationship kind of known or targeted so that it's always going to drink the same, whether it's 13.5% or 16.5%, it's still D-star. Uh, and the same is true of all those brands. And they all have their own unique balance value uh, that we're targeting. Uh, so when we have these really wacky high ABV fermentations like we're targeting, which is just to keep them from spoiling, it's to add stability, we can determine where they're at and bring them back together in just such a way that it's recognizable as such. So in 2016, it's a 13 and a half ABV version, but there are, I don't know how much blending we were doing uh, of this nature in 2016. The balance value metric is a little bit younger. I think that was conceived in like 2018, maybe as we get more alcohol, we need more sugar to support that. Uh, and as you get more sugar, you get more development over time. And if you get more development over time, you want younger barrels that will be as dynamic as the liquid inside. So yeah, it's, it sounds like there's a million things uh, going on and it's really just a, a handful of, of things and, and some things we can quantify like sugar and alcohol and months in barrel. And then there are things that you can't quantify like oak tannin concentration that you just have to taste at the end of every vintage year. Uh, we taste every barrel before we go to blending with it um, to make sure one, it's not infected and two, to educate ourselves for the next round of barrel ordering uh, to see what batches, what 
ABVs, what sugar concentrations, what barrel varieties, uh, et cetera, et cetera. What is working and what is maybe not working? And then we kind of make the changes on barrel selection. Most often, uh, it's about barrel preference that we're, we're changing through that. But that's it. That's, yeah, that's our metric. We call it balance value. And it, it just ensures that no matter where these wacky fermentations wind up landing, we bring the barrels back together in just the right numbers so that it's immediately recognizable to us as that product, no matter where the chips are falling. They're still falling in a recognizable pattern. So in a sense, you've created more knowns about what you are creating so that you can then shape your barrel orders to fit around that. And then at the same time, you have an understanding of what certain stocks you have and what you need to be able to blend back into the brand that is going to be created on the schedule? Uh, essentially, yeah. yeah mm-hmm. that's, that's the short version. Then when you're thinking about ordering and getting those barrels in, how have your sort of preferences shifted outside of the preference for younger barrels? Are there specific distiller marks that you're looking for? Oh, certainly. I don't want to give up all of the secrets, but I, I love Buffalo Trace and I, I can give this one up because Buffalo Trace uh, recently, their distillery group bought uh, another distillery group or something like that. And it's really difficult to get Buffalo Trace barrels now uh, because now they're all being, or not all, but the lion's share, as I understand, are being now second used by whiskey manufacturers rather than bourbon manufacturers. And pardon me for any inaccuracy there. It's all uh, secondhand knowledge. But I love those barrels because all of the Buffalo Trace whiskeys are fantastic whiskeys, uh, and it's great to have those whiskeys going into your product. Uh, and the barrels are, I'll use an expression that I learned from, from Mr. Jim Seaback, they're built like brick shit houses. They don't often leak like a lot of other barrels tend to. They also don't typically rinse their barrels. Uh, but now that they're so hard to get, I'm, I'm happy to divulge that, yeah, if you can score a Buffalo Trace barrel, just score it. Just shut up and grab it because you're going to be super happy with the results as long as you've done your homework and you've done a good job. Also, I really like Templeton Rye. I've never had a, a barrel give me so much cherry flavor and aroma just from the, the wood and the spirit alone. So it, it's fantastic to, to grab those. We, we actually just got some more uh, in the last couple of months. We've got uh, Blackberry Finn, which we announced is going to be coming out. The, the second barrel for that beer is Templeton Rye 10-year for the most part. And then uh, we've got a whole bunch of Templeton Rye 6-year uh, that's now home to another beer that uh, we can't talk about today, but uh, we'll hear about it in another uh, year and a half or so. Yeah. And for you, Jim, I mean, you were talking about dealing with Cooperage at Firestone Walker and all throughout. And so you've probably seen quite a bit of sort of change over time and what your understanding is of what happens to the beer in the wood and anything from the construction of the barrels themselves, what's going to work and what hasn't. What are some of the kind of biggest takeaways that you've had in seeing this, uh, the art of barrel aging change over time? Well, one of the biggest changes was when we first started putting beer in bourbon barrels. I mean, you would get a barrel and it would be slot. There'd be so much whiskey sloshing around or bourbon in there that, I mean, you could actually pour it out and filter it and collect it in a pint or in a bottle. But I think distillers, they have a lot of smart people working at distilleries and they are kind of coming to realize that they were giving away a ton of free whiskey or bourbon or whatever spirit would be in that in a particular barrel. So um, I think that they realized that they could rinse the barrels or even fill the barrel and leach some of that whiskey out of the water. And then they could have a, you know, a high tech filter can separate all that whiskey back out of there and they could recapture so much more. So back then, 
you know, when we were filling barrels, you would pick up a lot more alcohol and a lot more spirit character in, you know, in your aging time. I mean, it would go a long way in a very short period of time, especially in that first couple months, you'd pull a lot of that spirit into, into whatever beer you're aging. And you could put lower gravity beers in there, I feel too, because there is a lot of whiskey or spirit in that barrel. But now you're getting barrels that are potentially rinsed. They might have water sloshing around in there. Sometimes they sit around for a while. And when a barrel sits around, if it's not in a humid environment, it's not a good thing because it dries out. And we've seen some barrels before where you could actually, if you roll or rub the head and kind of push it back and forth, if you could like see it sway like sticks, then, you know, that's a dry barrel. Yeah, the construction of the barrel is very important, but the way the barrel is handled and stored is very important too. We try to time it so we have beer in a tank that's ready to go into a barrel. Even if that beer has to sit in the tank a little longer, it's better to have beer sitting in the tank for a month than it is to have barrels sitting around empty for a month waiting for the beer to finish fermenting because those barrels could be dry and uh, God knows what could happen. I mean, you can get a Britannomyces infection or a lactobacillus in, in barrels. So barrels are, you know, it, it's, Marty and I always said, you know, it's, it's pretty easy. You put good beer in a barrel, good beer out of the barrel, but the barrel is such an outlier that you can't guarantee that it's clean. It's like if you're cleaning half barrels that are stainless steel, you put them on your keg machine and clean them, you know it's cleaned and sanitized and it's purged with CO2, but you know, a barrel is like your hand. It's like you could sit there and scrub your hand. If you've ever seen them do that, well, they'll have a chef like scrub his hands for five minutes and he's like, oh, you think they're clean? And he's like, oh yeah. And then he puts them under a UV light and they just blow up. So, you know, barrels are the same way. It's like if someone's storing it where rainwater's dripping in it or God knows what could get into the barrel, you know, it can infect that beer. You put perfectly clean beer in a barrel, but if that barrel's contaminated, that beer is, I guarantee it's going to be contaminated unless you're putting it in there at a high enough ABV that can kind of stave off any bacterial or, you know, wild yeast infection for sure. And it sounds like maybe leaving a beer in a tank for a little bit longer isn't the end of the world if you're a fan of time. Indeed. Indeed. It'll just help the beer clear up more and it'll just round out a little bit more. But it's very important to make sure that you have barrels secured and beer ready for them rather than having, uh, you know, 100 barrels sitting around just drying out in the wintertime, especially when the air is really dry and you haven't been able to brew a beer yet or the beer you were going to fill the barrels with got pushed back in the schedule due to a priority of something else. So. There's a lot of logistics involved in there, and it's very important for, you know, in every part of the process, but the scheduling and ordering is very important as well because you want to try to time it to have your beer ready to go and have the barrels roll in and fill those babies as soon as you can. Let's do a little bit of a walkthrough on uh, on Tar. We've got uh, the 16 and the 20 in front of us. I suppose, you know, a good starting point with any of the beers is really what are you targeting from an appearance perspective, aroma, and experiential standpoints? Well, for D-Star, I mean, we, we always joke around and we, we say that uh, you can't even shine a light through it because it's so dark from all the dark malts that we add in there. Or when we're centrifuging this beer, it's funny because sometimes the sellerman will think that the light is broken because we have a little light to judge the clarity. And he's like, I think the light went out. And, and then I was getting a little closer and looking at it. I'm like, no, it's still on. It's just so damn dark that, you know, it barely shines through just like a little flicker of like ruby red coming through it. So D-Star is very opaque and black in color. 
Uh, we want it to have a very smooth texture. The interesting thing is that the dark malts that we're using in here are roasted barley and black malt, and they tend to have, like, if you just crunch on the malt, it's very, or on the, on the grain kernels, it's very, it has a little bit of astringency to it, and it's very roasty, almost more coffee-like. But the really cool thing about D-Star, I think, is once it comes out of the barrel and it's had that time to age, that it loses that roastiness and it becomes more like dark baker's chocolate and like fudgy notes. And I think that's a really cool aspect of this beer. But there's definitely that character in there. And we also want to have like some nice vanilla character from the from the oak itself, some caramel underlying in there, not only from the malt, but from the whiskey itself and just from the wood sugars that are, you know, naturally present in there as well. But we just want it to be an overall smooth drinking experience. And that's one of the reasons why it's an imperial oatmeal stout is using the flaked oats and the oat malt. It's an English brewing trick to really help develop and create some texture in your finished product. Even if it's a lighter style beer, like even with their bitters, they'll slide in like wheat malt or flaked oats or flaked barley or torrified wheat, things like that. It's kind of like an old trick to really give even lighter beers mouthfeel. But uh, not that this is a light beer by any means, but we still want to really kind of build and create that mouthfeel. And uh, for you, Marty, on the 2020 D-Star, what sort of uh, stock of barrels went into the blend for that year? Oh, put me on the spot. I'm happy to report there was uh, a fair share of uh, Weller barrels going into that, both Special Reserve, which, try as I might, I can't find a single whiskey called Special Reserve from Weller. I guess they use it uh, as, a, as a blending agent into other whiskeys. Yeah, it was uh, 10-year and Special Reserve uh, Weller barrels, but there's also... If I had to guess, there's a, a good deal of Buffalo Trace Mash 1 and 2, uh, just kind of typical Buffalo Trace barrels. And that was really the lion's share. It was a really good year for that beer. Most of the time when when we talk about Rockstar barrels, again, we're not talking about certain brands that are really exceptionally old uh, that yield very expensive bottles of whiskey. We talk about barrels that really bring a lot of um, dynamics an oak-derived, especially, dynamics to the beer. Jim and I will taste hundreds of barrels uh, sometimes in a day uh, ahead of a, a blending operation uh, for a release. And uh, we may flag just a very small handful of barrels that are exceptional in our esteem. Uh, we call them money barrels. You know, it's not too hard to, to guess why. And with 2020, tasting through literally hundreds of barrels, it was probably 280-ish barrels between Deeth and Cafe. It was like every single barrel was a money barrel. They were all better than pretty much all the barrels from previous vintages. It makes us really sad to see the Buffalo Trace barrels go. Um, we're going to have to come up with other cool, groovy ways to, to make these beers dynamic and compelling. But I have every confidence that uh, we've achieved that. Um, more on that after this next release. But yeah, there was probably some Willet tossed in there too. Uh, Willet's a great workhorse barrel. Uh, they're young, they're not rinsed, they're solid. You know, it's just fantastic whiskey on top of that. And when you're aging as long as we age, you know, if you get a four-year barrel with well, the whiskey's aging right along with the beer for an extra couple of years, not storybook barrels uh, necessarily, but just fantastic, maybe the best workhorse barrels we've ever had. Or I should say certainly the best workhorse barrels we've ever had. And when you're blending for this particular release, what are some of the goals that you have for replication of experience from the past, from past vintages? Or are you looking for a singular experience that can be marked by the vintage? I would love it 
if it was so romantic and poetic is, is the latter there. Uh, really, we're aiming to hit our balance value target. We've got to hit the sales volume because we've got a certain number of cans and boxes printed and promises made to retailers. So we've got to hit that volume and we've got to hit that balance value target to make sure the beer kind of drinks the same way it always does. On top of that, if we've done our job right uh, when we're ordering our barrels and we're taking care of our barrels, we're going to have a compelling story to tell that's barrel derived. And we don't tell the barrels what flavors to, to put off uh, into the beer. So as long as we've taken care of the barrels and especially as brewers, we've taken care of the beer. We're lucky enough that, uh, or maybe I shouldn't say lucky, uh, you know, we've, we've enjoyed the beer's coming out of the program for uh, the last couple of years, especially. And we're always looking forward to it because it's going to be slightly different. But uh, if it continues on the same path, it doesn't have to be a replication. It doesn't have to be, you know, oh, it's got to be all coconut this year. Um, whatever we get, we're going to be happy with as long as we've done right by the beer. So yeah, it, there's there's no real target for that. Now, sometimes I will ask Ben at Midwest Barrel, hey, I love those Templeton rye barrels. Can I get more of those? And maybe he can, maybe he can't. You know, it's all about timing. So you take the best barrels available to you when that beer is ready to go. And in a production setting, if you need more anti-hero IPA and you need it now to keep those tap handles flowing around Chicago and around the uh, other what, eight or nine states that we're in, that beer is going to get kicked in the in favor of anti-hero. And that's fine. You know, that's what keeps the lights on. It's why I eat. In a production setting, we just have to get whatever best or most you know cool sounding barrels we can get when that beer is going to be ready. So it's, it's much more about the relationship we have with our barrel supplier. He knows what we like. He knows what we detest. And uh, when we say we need 200 barrels six weeks from now, he gets looking for the barrels he knows we like, and he won't even tell us about the barrels he knows we won't. Not that they carry a lot of barrels that we don't like. It should just be a, a barrel-derived rip in good time that's easy enough to drink for 15, 16 ABV. I think that's very important that Marty alluded to earlier when he was talking about balance value is we don't want the beer to taste the same and be the same every single year. We approach it really like winemakers and we're trying to have different nuances in this beer every every year from the barrels and the blend of barrels and the age of the barrels. Uh, we, we don't alter the recipe very much at all by any means. We keep that consistent. And Marty, with his balance value, is really trying to create the same drinking experience, the same mouthfeel and texture every year, even though it's a really strong beer. But like Marty alluded to, if we can't get Buffalo Trace barrels, we're not going to say, oh, we can't brew Dietzhar anymore because you know we can't get Buffalo Trace barrels. So we don't want to put all our eggs in one basket and we don't do that. And the, the really cool thing and why it's different every year is because we have a host of different barrels every year that Sometimes they come available, sometimes they're, they're not. And, you know, we love to taste through these beers and see the special things that each one of these barrels creates and adds to the beer. And then when we sit in, after we've tasted through, like Marty said, for, I think we tasted close to 300 different barrels of D-Star last year from, you know, a whole host of different barrels, different ages. And it's really great to go through and taste those and see the ones that are older, like kicking the real serious, like fudgy character and then like Baker's Chocolate some have like a cherry character going on. It really depends what barrel it is, what time, how long it's been in the barrel. We don't play around with temperature in our barrels. We try to keep our temperature very consistent. We basically keep them at room temperature. We don't want to have fluctuations in where it gets really hot because it's really hot in the brewery. And in the early days of the brewery, we didn't have temperature control. So the barrels were out there and they were doing their thing. 
And we just feel that now that we're able to control our temperature and keep that consistent, that's a, added another wrinkle, or I should say flattened out a wrinkle in our process to really ensure that we're producing super consistent, you know, the same drinking experience every year, but then all these really cool nuances from the, the host of barrels that we're using every year. Because like I said, we don't want it to be exactly the same. We want Antihero to be the same. We want Fist City to be the same. We don't want to have that be radically different, but these barrel-aged beers, they're really cool. And some of them that we brew, we may never make them again. Or if we do make them, they may not be in that same barrel. We may not be able to get that barrel again. So it's really a cool thing, and it's dynamic, and it's different every year. Yeah, and it definitely puts a lot on the vintage stamp as well in the sense that this year is an expression of this time, and this is what was going on in the brewery. This is what we had access to enjoy this moment, and we chose a can because this is the closest thing we have to a safe. So, You're listening to Heavy Hops. We'll have more from Jim Seebeck and Marty Scott in a minute. There are a few things happening in the world of Heavy Hops and Scorched Tundra at the moment I want to share. Live music is back. The first Scorched Tundra Presents show is taking place on Saturday, September 4th at the Empty Bottle in Chicago, featuring In the Company of Serpents, Hive, and Roman Ring. You can find tickets to this show and all other Scorched Tundra Presents shows at scorchedtundra.com slash tickets. We've also created a crowdfunding source for all things Heavy Hops and Scorched Tundra. If you love what we do and want to support us, Find the donate link in the episode notes and give what you'd like. Giving any amount will grant you access to our growing Discord community. Thanks for this moment, and back to our conversation and tasting of barrel-aged beers with Jim Seebeck and Marty Scott. So the next beer that we've got up here is the Cuvée de Grasse from 2020, and this is a blend of multi-vintage oatmeal and rye stouts and also barley wine, scotch ale. I mean, this is the kitchen sink in a lot of ways. Walk us through some of the components that go into it and then how you sort of designed this vintage because this is a different beer year over year. Yeah. So Cuvée de Gras, the, the naming scheme is actually a tribute to the first beer that I observed Jim Brew that April 2010, which was uh, Coup de Gras. And uh, this beer, or the idea for this beer, started as a draft variant for one of our release parties, what uh, would have been 2019, I imagine. And it was uh, it had some French oak to it, or some French oak barrels from the Boss Ryeway, I want to say. It was like extra old Boss Ryeway and some Woodford Double Oak Ryeway sweet component. So I, I named it as a in tribute to Jim uh, and for that, uh, that first brew day that he let me share with him making Coup de Gras. This version went into half of the barrels were Templeton Rye Caribbean cask finishing barrels. So these were... These were used and abused barrels, man. They were first. Yeah, anything, <laughs> anything Caribbean sounding tends to be uh, used and abused, right? Yes, uh, not a lot of American oak cooperages down in the Caribbean. So these were primarily, I imagine, they they tried to scrub the uh, <laughs> the barrel names off the rum distillery, whoever they were, but they were Jack Daniels and Jim Beam barrels. And then they were rum barrels. And then they finished Templeton Rye Caribbean cask. So there's not a whole lot of rum flavor there. Uh, That rum flavor, for the most part, was spirit bound and went into Templeton Rye Caribbean cask. Fantastic whiskey, if you can get it. So what we had were oak barrels that had some really rad rum-infused rye whiskey 
in them. But the barrels themselves had kind of mostly told their story. So whatever story they had left to tell was trapped in the whiskey. But uh, fortunately, they were exceptionally wet. And uh, we just kind of played around filling, knowing that uh, you need to cast a wide net for draft variants or for discovering new things. You have to say yes to these small volume opportunities. When the barrel supplier says, hey, I've got XYZ barrels, you just say, yeah. And you tell them how many you want and you move forward with whatever you get uh, and you find an outlet for it. Cuvée de Gras offered us or offers us this uh, opportunity uh, as an outlet for these really expressive and unique barrels of beer uh, that may not have enough volume on their own to be a standalone release. We have to release probably you know, around about 20 oak barrels worth as a bare minimum to put it into cans and release it in stores or release it ourselves even. We don't want to say no to these six or 12 or 18 really unique barrels. You just get them and you use them and you see where you land. And when we realized that these beers were fantastic, but they were just missing that kind of deep wood oak intensity, uh, we decided to employ some extra oak. Jim and I were scratching our brains. We were going through the uh, the Paso Robles, California Rolodex, all of his Firestone and um, Firestone adjacent friends out there trying to find wine lumber that we could finish these barrels in. But winemakers don't discard good wine barrels without charging an arm and a leg. They're either totally neutralized, meaning the barrels have no story left to tell. Uh, There's just a a vessel uh, that previously held a bunch of cool shit, or they're infected with Britannomyces. And we're not really interested in either of those for the Deepwood program. Those barrels do have a lot of great purpose in other areas of the brewing discipline. We thought, well, Cuvée de Gras, these barrels are all American oak. There's no French oak to it. And we've got a French name, and this is all about blending and old world techniques. Uh, so we need some French oak. And we couldn't get the barrels from Paso, the, the gently used but infused wine barrels uh, without dropping you know, a grand a unit. So we got in touch with, actually it was uh, our friend Ryan Render, uh, who's now at uh, Tonelario Creative Oak out near Paso Robles. I, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the, the actual town. He was, he's worked with Caduce, the French cooperage, run his own uh, wine label, Rendario uh, Wine Cellars for a number of years. Really cool dude actually reached out to us. Uh, I was about to call him and he called me and uh, asked if, you know, he's like, oh, I'm with this new company. Do you have any use for, you know, French oak <laughs> out of Paso Robles, California? And yes, uh, I, yeah, I had to pinch myself. How the hell did this opportunity come with the necessity so beautifully the same day I was about to reach out to you? So we, we got these things they call bung inserts or bung chains, uh, and it's like sausage links, but it's like six to 10 sausages, sausage links with these custom toasted French and American oak planks in them that you can just put into a barrel and you can turn a totally neutralized barrel into basically, and from an expression standpoint, a brand new barrel. And you can do this for much less than the thousand or $1,500 that a typical brand new French oak barrel will run you. Uh, and it also won't infect your beer if you're putting it into something that's already 14, 15 ABV and mm, beer's catching up. But, uh, are these sausages different from like uh, oak spirals? Only in the way that they're employed or packaged, uh, but uh, fundamentally it's the same. It's surface area of you know virgin oak, uh, or not virgin oak, but toasted oak. Uh, but they have, what we used for this rendition of Cuvée de Gras was 
mostly leaning on single forest examples. Two primarily, they were uh, Fontainebleau, uh, which is where the French kings and, and monarchy used to hunt. It was their private hunting grounds, you know, and, and you can go online and you can see all about the, the contributions of Fontainebleau French oak. Uh, and there's a special way of toasting it to make it, you know, really sing. There's two others. Um, there was Tronce Fort, uh, I think that was the other one that we used a lot of in this Cuvée de Gras. Mm-hmm. And the single coolest barrel for my money uh, that I've ever tasted was a sweet component straight jacket in a Four Roses barrel with one of these uh, Tronce Fort bung chains added to it. It was just the, the most stunningly complex, uh, vanilla-laden, but it wasn't overpowering. It wasn't like tannic. It didn't uh, make your mouth sad or anything. It was just so much stuff going on. And that's really what's driving the character in this Cuvée de Gras is uh, a cross between really high quality but young bourbon casks and these Templeton Rye Caribbean finishing casks. And about a third of all the barrels we use, we, I think we consumed about 36-ish oak barrels for this blend. Uh, and about half of them came from these Caribbean barrels and about a third of all the barrels, some of the Caribbean casks included, had these uh, single forest French oak bung chains in them as well. And there were, uh, we used a couple of like extreme vanilla toasted uh, French and American oak combinations. I don't recall the, the fourth one offhand. You know, we were tasting through and trying to figure out like what's different about the bung chains. Order a whole bunch, you know, all at once and let's taste through and, and kind of refine our selection going forward as we do with all of the releases. And we're going to be doing a lot more of this, even for regular old straight jacket, regular old D-Star, you know, never mind the VSOJs and VSORs of the world. There is going to be a lot more of this really cool, especially French oak additions going into these barrels and because we can do it without having to drop you know absurd amounts of cash uh for this lumber we can still provide to consumer really compelling unique old world flavors and aromas and we're not going to ask you for you know 90 dollars a four pack in exchange how are you kind of balancing some of these like the old world flavors of the french oak and then the extreme char or some of like the young bourbon characteristics? What are some of the values that you're looking to get from them? Frankly, I I never thought about it. It's got to drink a certain way. This beer was put together with a balance value in mind, Uh, the the same as all of them, even though we don't have a a set metric for it because it's a rotating brand. It's whatever barrels that we think we can cobble together to make a really compelling, unique beer uh, that you can't blend at home. You know, this is not simply, you know, 10% D-Star, 40% you know, yada and, and, and on and on. So even if you buy every one of our Deepwood beers in a particular vintage, you are never going to be able to make Cuvée de Gras. And really, you'll never be able to blend any of these beers because we're using multi-vintage across the board. And even Cuvée de Gras is a, is a blend of some barrels that we would typically consider too young for most of the releases, especially those Caribbean casks. They, they weren't aged all that long. Again, those barrels themselves had given up the ghost. You know, there wasn't a whole lot a point in sitting on them other than allowing the the beers to to develop on their own inside but we weren't pulling any more oak from it but there was also some some well old you know 18 24 36 month old beer going into this as well um, but the star of the show for for me is the blend of uh, rye wine or rye way to heaven and straight jacket with uh, just a, a touch of Thundertaker and D Star, uh, but that French oak from those uh, single forest uh, variety bung inserts 
really drive the experience uh, from an aromatic um, and somewhat less so flavor standpoint, uh, but just so unique and, and satisfying. I love coming back to the glass over and over and pulling out something different without having to try. I think this beer more than any other one in the Deepwood series is one that we're really adamant about making sure that it is really unique each time. We want this one to be really expressive, not only with the beers that we're adding and the, the age of the beers that we're adding, but with, uh, as Marty was saying, kind of doing a combination of, you know, using French oak in there as well, a different toasting rates to create different flavors. You really can't calculate it. They can give you suggestions of how much time it might take to extract what you want. It could be sometimes four to six months. We found that we got some a serious extraction in a matter of like two or three weeks. We we're like, whoa, this is really different. But you really can't calculate it. You really have to rely, especially on a beer like this, very heavily on on your sensory notes and, and your palate. And you know, you get ten different brewers, and you might have ten different blends of you know what they would like to see in a, in a beer like Cuvée de Gras. You know, because it's it's all up to preference. It's all up what you know up what you like. Do you want to have Deet Star be a prominent component in there? Or do you would you rather have Ryeway and Straight Jacket be a prominent component with you know, a little bit of hints of Deet Star in there just to get some of those, the texture and flavor and add a little color to it. It's really up to whoever is doing the blending. And, you know, Marty and I approached it and we're like, we want to really try to make sure that this is different and unique. And it's really cool to see that different woods can play together. You think, oh, maybe it could only be all French oak or maybe, you know, all bourbon barrels, or you don't want to mix the two together, but they really interplay nicely together. But like I said, you just really have to rely on, you know, you have to taste everything and then you have to play around with your blending and experiment with that and really see what works and in what ratios. But as far as calculating, you know, Marty always tries to hit a balance value. But like he said, sometimes even that needs to be altered when you taste the finished beer and you have to go back and add more of this, a little of this. It takes them out, add more of this until you're really happy with that finished product because it gets you in the ballpark, but it's still might need a little bit of tweaking to further refine it. And since we're charging a lot of money for these beers and we're investing a lot of time and effort into them, we don't want to be just in the ballpark. You know, we, if we put a little target on home plate, when you're parachuting in, you want to land on home plate. You don't want to just land on the field somewhere. You know, we want to try to get it as close to what we want it to be like as possible. And as far as the sensory process, I'm assuming that it's maybe more than just the two of you tasting these barrels and are being involved in the calculus of the proportions and then therefore the final product in some way. So how do you approach kind of creating like a sensory panel within your staff for this type of product? And what are some of the things that you consider? Because... You know, everyone that comes to the sensory panel comes with a different set of experiences and different backgrounds, and that can be rich fodder for input. Excellent question, Uh, Jim, if you don't mind. Go for it, Marty. When we are going through and tasting every beer for the blend, that we're basically giving a thumbs up or thumbs down on every barrel ahead of the blend. The blend is established at that point, and those are going in unless we find them to be objectionable. Knock on wood, we haven't had that situation come up yet. Where we get other people involved in tasting is when there are too many barrels for us to taste uh, and to clear. So occasionally brewery manager Evan Isaac will uh, will join in if, if he's free. Our uh, barrel specialist Victor Maravilla is getting more and more involved in it. And he's as much as we 
can spare him from other valuable things that he's doing at the brewery, trying to pull him into the barrel program as often as possible. But most of the time, the, the spreadsheet has kind of set the blend for us. And the sensory input that we give from the previous year is what educates what barrels we're going to try to order. Anyway, of course, inventory is what dictates what barrels we do order and what we do receive. But that work is fluid and it's happening across vintages. The, the real control of this is, is happening by doing the, the best job as brewers we can all the time and just trusting our system. And whatever the barrels give us at the end of the day is what the barrels give us. And we're, we're happy when it, when it turns out great. And when it does, we order more of those barrels if we can. But typically, it's, yeah, it is just Jim and I going through and tasting 200 barrels in a day. Uh, we do a lot more work with our noses than our, our mouths. We typically don't drive on a, on a day like that, but we, we really don't cop a buzz either. I mean, we're, we're drinking, you know, half an ounce or, you know, even a, just a couple of milliliters, like three to six milliliters per barrel over a, a six hour period, or I'm sorry, at a time, but like nonstop for six hours or so. But yeah. The, the, the work is, like I said, is, is mostly done by the spreadsheet at this point. It sounds unsexy and maybe it is unsexy, but the work that put people on the moon was unsexy too, you know, and look at that. There's fucking people on the goddamn moon. I feel like an idiot comparing the, the two feats of making a beer that doesn't suck and putting human <laughs> beings on the surface of the moon because uh, they're not the same. But uh, they, they both happen through the, through the same thing. Some things you notice with your eyes and some things, uh, you know, a spreadsheet tells you. Jim and I just sample a shitload of barrels and we decide what we like and what we don't. As long as the numbers make sense and, uh, you know, we're happy with the product, you know, typically the fans, the folks coming out to buy in the beer, they've enjoyed it as well. And nobody's made to taste barrels. It's really anyone that is really excited about it is someone that will want to kind of hang out and they're just not, they don't want to just drink beer. I mean, they're there. They know what we're doing and what our approach is. They want to taste the barrels as well. And their input is extremely important to us and valued. So the more people we have tasting, it's like everyone has a different palate too. And sometimes people can pick up different nuances that maybe Marty and I wouldn't pick up or have a, you know, a good suggestion on, Hey, we should incorporate some of this, or we should maybe get, try to, you know, get these kind of uh, brand of barrels or this variety of wood oak alternatives or something just, you know, there's a lot of people, a lot of smart brewers on our team. So we don't want to eliminate anyone from uh, you know, having some great input. And that's how our process has gotten better. You know, a lot of smart people working on it, taking a look at it at the end of the year, evaluating where we're at and saying, hey, how can we make this better? How could we make it more efficient? How could we increase the quality? How could we increase the yield? And when you start coupling all those things together, then you really can make the program very successful. And really the bottom line is the finished product. But it is a business after all, and we have to make sure that, you know, we're on point with everything. We don't want to have, uh, or we want to minimize loss. We don't We don't want to have to dump half of our barrels, God forbid. Uh, so we keep a close watch on everything, you know, sense, not only sensorily or on the, from a sensory standpoint, but from a QC standpoint as well, testing in the QC lab. Marty's pulling samples, measuring, you know, seeing what the ABV is, seeing what the finishing gravity of the beer is, plugging that into his spreadsheet. There's really a lot that goes into it. And it was funny because I was thinking about the other day because Marty and I said, you know, good beer in a barrel, good beer out of a barrel. And that is still true, but there's so many other little aspects going into it now, especially in a program where we're releasing sometimes 
12 plus different brands per year. I mean, just trying to make sure that we have enough beer for all these uh, different brands. And then we're looking at extended age brands. So we have to factor that in too, because a certain percentage of all these barrels are going to have to be aged for an extended period of time. So it's very complicated. And I mean, Marty focuses on it full time and I mean, it's a full-time job. And finally, he's got Victor to help him out at the brewery who's crushing it. He's just a, a monster of monster workhorse, just crushing work and learning every day. And he's a great guy and he's super into what he's doing and he's super proud of it. And he's doing an awesome job on top of it all. We could do an entire podcast about how much I love and adore Victor. <laughs> uh, he's uh, absolutely incredible. We're going to hear a lot more about him over the years. To go back to your initial question, there are instances where we need a, a committee. We need a consensus. Today, we were doing the benchtop formulation for Blackberry Finn, uh, which we just announced is going to be coming out this year. It's a bone-dry, double bourbon barrel-aged straight jacket, essentially. But it's not recognizable as straight jacket as such because there's uh, very little malt sugar associated with it. The alcohol content is through the roof being double bourbon barrel age. It's closer to 17 ABV than it is 16 and a half. We had uh, the aforementioned crew, Evan and Victor, Jim and myself. We also had uh, innovation brewer, Andy Lautner in the QC lab. And we were just adding blackberry juice to this super dry, boozy barley wine, you know, milliliter by milliliter and just saying, okay, where is that point? And more so than that, where is that point going to be when it comes time to release? Because this beer is still in barrels and we're trying to formulate the finished product now to get our fruit ordered with these quantities and global warming and wildfires and, and all this stuff, produce and, and uh, agro products. We need to get way ahead of this stuff. Even though we're not releasing for several months now, we still have to kind of formulate the beer and think, okay, well, how much more oak is going to be in this beer in a couple of months? Well, we need to figure out that and order that much blackberry puree right now. In those instances, yeah, when we're designing these beers, especially when we're bringing in adjuncts, we don't want to just leave it to, to Jim and I because we find most things with alcohol pretty agreeable for the most part. And it'd be very easy to just go, yeah, that's great. Let's do it. Because um, I rely on a system uh, to keep it all straight. And so I don't have to lose sleep over every single brand in the series. But these are not things that we're doing year over year. These are things that we may only get one shot at doing. Uh, so we bring in you know, our, our most experienced and trusted folks in to just do a quick 15, 20 minute tasting and, and discussion about not only what we're smelling and tasting and seeing, but what's the identity of the brand. Um, it's up to us to define and unite behind and then move forward in its execution. And you can't do that at least well with just telling people, this is what we're doing. You know, it's, it's much more beneficial and much safer to bring the most trusted and experienced people around you in to do what they're professionals at. And that's taste and design beer. Yeah, we do get a lot of people involved, but it's not every day that we get to do that. I think coming to a consensus amongst the people that you really trust and value their opinion is really great. I mean, Marty and I are going to put up a really good product, but it's really good to have, say, eight to 10 people come into a room and say, all right, what's everyone feel? And then we kind of talk it out and then we kind of decide it's like, it should be a higher percentage of blackberry puree uh, or a little bit less, or is everyone happy at, at this point right here? Are we good or do we need to amp it up a little bit? Do we need to 
bring it back a little. And once we get a consensus so that everyone agrees upon, then I, I feel a lot better about it personally, just because more people have gotten their uh, their palate on it and really kind of helped us out with their opinion in the, in the sensory department. So we just feel like we're validated the more people taste it and they say, give it the thumbs up. So we really appreciate that. And, you know, like I said, we value people's opinions at the brewery. We got a lot of experienced brewers and, you know, they've been doing this for a long time. They know what they're talking about. So uh, I trust them and I know Marty does as well. And when we come to a consensus, we're pretty pleased with it. We, I mean, that's what we go with. And as far as, I guess, sort of with the marketing side of some of this, because with a beer like this, you're talking about a number of different components that go into it. And so there's a certain level of how do we communicate succinctly this intentionally complex beer, right? You're trying to create something that is complex and rewarding and is unique and that cannot be created at home, right? And so how do you kind of negotiate the complexity of communicating that through marketing in some way? Is this an opportunity where they get involved in the sensory in some way and then gauging that in relation to market expectations? Because these are like different beers than what lactose bombs are and what heavy adjunct beers are too. I know that's like 50 questions at once, but we can start with at least like the market getting the message across succinctly with something complex. How do you then ascribe the highest values for a beer that's this complicated? Fantastic question. If you look at the the side of the can or the published description for Cuvée de Gras, it no longer speaks to the specific beer that's in the can. It's all about the approach because we don't need to spend however many thousands of dollars updating the label with all this information every single time we release it because we know it's going to change every single time. We have a, a standard approach to it, but to get the, the nuance of what makes that beer that beer and not last year's beer or next year's beer, uh, not to say that we're going to release Cuvée every single year, we rely on our second-to-none communications team, and that's Doug Velicki up on top, our CFO and um, he does so much. Uh, marketing director responsibilities as well. John and Hillary and have been great too. John Carruthers, Hillary. John is a, an English student or a, a literature student, so he's, he's a wordsmith. I believe he's also a Cicerone. And he's also laid back. He gets it. You know, he's a, he's a pragmatist. He appreciates what we're doing and he loves beer, he loves a good time, and he's a, a fantastic writer. When we put out the description for what makes this cuvee this cuvee, we can show him, we can let him taste a couple of these barrels and let him know where our head's at with it and what we're anticipating. But he's got to have that piece written, that story written well before all these barrels get brought together. He's a beer professional and he can kind of tease out what the truth of the beer is going to be even before even we know what the truth is. Uh, again, being able to, as a larger independent brewer, being able to lean on teams of people who do specific jobs really well and leave us to do the other jobs that we're trained to do as a tremendous freeing effect for us. We don't have to worry about the minutia of how do we communicate this to our consumer. Uh, we can tell that very talented team where our head's at and where we think the product is going, and they can get it ready to explain to the folks in the marketplace. It's just a fantastic opportunity for us. Not opportunity. We're just spoiled. Uh, we've got a ridiculously talented and hardworking team, which is why I don't want to work for anybody else. 
already worked really hard with the marketing team, uh, really showcasing the different components of this beer, even going as far as pouring different pitchers that one time in that, uh, was that a social media post? I forgot. On Yeah, we did the main six or seven components tasted out individually. That was really cool. I think that's really great, a great educational tool for everyone to really wrap their mind around what we're talking about and think about like the options for blending and how we came about creating this finished blend and finished product. And I mean, how many components were in there adding their little nuances to this one overall finished product. Yeah, and consumer expectations. I meander when I speak, when I write. I'm thinking about every little detail that ever kept me up at night, uh, whether it's to validate my stress or to try to be as open as possible uh, about what we're doing. And that's not good for consumer education. It gets lost uh, <laughs> by by just useless blather. John Carruthers, Doug, uh, Hillary, they're fantastic at distilling those ideas down and putting them in a present package without losing any of the spirit. And a lot of times embellishing the spirit that I give when they're asking me what's XYZ all about, I'll go on for 20 minutes and they can find that five line description that gets at the heart at what we're trying to communicate in liquid form. And they put that into written or verbal form, setting that expectation for the consumer, an accurate description. It's not about hype. It's about setting the expectation. And when a product meets consumers' expectations, they're far more likely to enjoy it. If you throw them a curveball, if you say this beer is red and it comes out black, immediately people are going to oh, this is the worst red ale I've ever tasted. I do wonder about consumers' expectations in some way because ultimately these are beers that are discussed quite a bit. In some cases, there is secondary market value that gets attributed to them in some way. And so I'm curious for you as the people that make it, how does this impact you and sit with you? You know, I really don't think about that all that much. I think Marty and I are just like so, and the whole brew team and staff at the brewery are just so focused on trying to put out the best product we can like we really don't think about like any kind of like secondary market or what's going on with that. I, I really don't even watch that very closely myself or participate in that by any means. I mean, I think it's cool. I, I think that if people are into our beer and they want to buy it and, you know, sell it and trade it around, I, I think that's a pretty cool thing. But I don't think about that very much. Marty and I are just focusing on trying to really make something we're super happy with and have it be exactly what we want it to be. We don't want to put anything that's, you know, kind of shabby out. We always feel like every year we keep trying to put the bar a little bit higher, but eventually you see in the Olympics, the bar gets pretty high and then it's hard to get over it again, you know? So, but we keep trying and we're always trying to refine our process and make it better and source better materials look at our process, look at our cellar process, look at our brew house. You know, how can we get more efficient? How can we make the beer clear? How do we have less loss? How do we have, you know, how do we find better barrels that are more compelling? How do we, you know, source out some interesting barrels? And like Marty said, when there is an opportunity, a lot of times when you're a bigger company, there's a little pushback on when you want to just get something to get it. Because when say 30 cool barrels come along, we have to just jump on it. There's no time to sit around and get a committee together and say, hey guys, we want to do this and go through, you know, 15 hoops. You need to get those barrels because by the time you get through those hoops and say everyone's got their thumbs up for a project, those barrels are not there anymore. So it's really important when there's an opportunity to jump on it. And then 
everyone in the company is very cool about they're like okay so what are we going to do with these and that's where we kind of come to the drawing board and we say hey we're you know we could do another cuvee or we could do this project so when things are available you really have to jump on them and strike while the iron's hot as they say and really be able to produce some unique cool things like the cuvee so we've got our last two hopefully never last two hopefully this is just the beginning of the VSOJ and VSOD. I think we'll start with the uh, VSOD, the very special old Deeth. Marty, do you want to walk us through some of the core of what this beer is and what we can expect to get from it? Uh, yeah, I guess the best place to start with uh, the VSO is to talk about VSO. Very special old that's borrowed from cognac terminology. When we initially started uh, not having 25 to 30% of our barrels become infected and uh, we could do what Jim alluded to, which was have this carryover extra vintage beer supply or barrels that were, were carried over from one vintage year to another to continue to develop. I had uh, what I referred to as the barrel map and that was a bird's eye view of the stacks and that served as inventory and location data for all the barrels. In the early days, it was, you know, it was X number of straitjacket, X number of D-star, X number of ryeway, maybe X number of gravedigger billy, X number of very mad cow, mean gene. And we started carrying over more and more because we weren't infecting barrels and because we were brewing more than we could release. So I just put VO for very old next to like VO gene to tell me that these barrels were from the previous vintage year. And then we got to releasing those beers kind of on their own as draft variants. And I didn't want to just call it very old, but I also didn't want to call it very superior because these, after all, are their beers and their beers by Revolution Brewing. They're supposed to be for everybody. And uh, very superior just sounded a, a bit hoity-toity. So we went with very special old. And somebody added, I think it was Josh Deeth added the, the very special old because I wanted, I was just going to call him VO maybe. And uh, he's like, oh, VSO. However it happened, it happened. One batch of straight jacket many years ago, there was an issue with mash temperature. I think a, a heat jacket on the mash tun got stuck on or something like that and uh, wound up cooking the mash a little bit, uh, making it a little less fermentable. Uh, so it finished really sweet. And back in the day, it would take six to eight months to sell through 30, 40, 50 oak barrels worth of straight jacket. So we had to brew a really dry version as well to offset it. And then we could only use about 50% of each of those batches to fill the orders essentially for straight jacket the following year, which meant we had a lot of straight jacket to carry over. We saw the dry component after two years was oakier, maybe a little bit darker, but fundamentally the same as one year straight jacket, but with a little bit less sugar to it. Conversely, that sweet component that we were forced to carry over for an entire second year, this is before we had March and April and May and June, July <laughs> releases in the, in the program, this two-year sweet component straight jacket uh, without the antioxidant properties of the dark malts of your stouts and porters became this thing that we had never really encountered in our experience. And certainly I then I was still pretty green. And uh, everybody at the, the release party kept telling me how amazing VSOJ was. And I was shocked that uh, they weren't telling me how great some other variant or some like some other stout was. I was stout obsessed. 
And uh, we started looking into it and uh, paying attention and saw, holy crap, like the color is, is way dark on this barley wine. And what the heck's going on with this? And we go back into regular brewing disciplines and we see the, the impact that oxidation has on sugar and uh, malleard process. And oxidation in, in a barrel is just very slow malleard process. It's exactly what's happening in the brew kettle, but just really, really slowly. But it's also happening post-fermentation uh, and over a long period of time and we realize like there's something to this and it's not just because it's been in a barrel for two years it's sweeter than that and those flavors are deeper and more complex and they're not just turned up they're entirely different flavors than what we see from regular what we call regular old straight jacket now after one year in a, in a great bourbon barrel even so we started weaponizing this knowledge in the form of the vso kind of sub-series in the Deepwood program. So VSO is always gonna be at least an average of two years old uh, in the blend. We might use some younger dryer barrels. We know the younger dryer barrels are more stable. They're not gonna change a whole lot over year after year after year. So we just do sugar adjustments basically with those. Uh, the old components are all the sweet components because those have a lot of dynamics. As you age them, they will continue to thank you for aging them if you're into that kind of liquid bread crust. Uh, Malliard uh, turbocharged thing. So that's really the the foundation of the VSO program. We were also using like really romantic storied barrels uh, to try to premiumize the subsect or the the sub series uh, until we realized that you know young barrels are far more suited to longer aging periods than um, older ones, at least for our end. So that's that's really what uh, the VSO means is it's older and it's sweeter and it's not just both the ramifications or the result is something that you just can't get out of any beer aged for one year what we've got right here is double barrel vsod it's 17 abv unlike pretty much every other beer in the program it is entirely unblended we kind of nailed the target finishing gravity or sugar concentration with this beer on the first go around this is uh, unblended d-star batch 2114 uh, spent two two and a half years in a blend of weller special reserve and 10-year barrels and it's just those Weller barrels. Well, those were the second barrels, pardon me. The first barrels, again, a blend of Buffalo Trace Mash 1 and 2, Willet, Heaven Hill, Old Forester, unsexy workhorse barrels that will reward you for extracting them rather than just pulling out the whiskey that's living in there. And uh, I'll let you all talk about the, uh, the sensory on the beer. I've given you the backstory. Well, we also approach these beers with a unique perspective because we're brewing them specifically for double barrel VSOD or VSOJ. Uh, we're brewing them to start with a higher starting gravity and then finish a little higher too, but still get that alcohol content where we want it to be. So it's a stronger beer, more stable in the barrels, but we want that finishing gravity to be a little higher on these VSO projects because some of them go into a second barrel where it's going to pick up more alcohol. So we don't want that alcohol and sugar ratio to get out of out of control because if the beer is too dry and the alcohol content is too high and then you're dealing with darker malts like we have in VSOD, lots of uh, oak tannin from these uh, really young barrels, you can get out of balance pretty quickly in your finished product. I just love the, the VSOD because I... The first thing that pops into my mind, I always think of like uh, graham crackers and I also think of like fudge. It's got like a really nice chocolatey fudgy note to it. As I said, as brewers, we're very proud that we can coax that uh, character out of the uh, raw materials and give this beer the 
proper time that it deserves to really like showcase and really unleash all these amazing aromas and flavors that are naturally present in, in these raw materials. Yeah, these are very special characteristics that really only time can pull out. You can't really manufacture this in the grist. This is something that the grist is a component of it, but ultimately these are huge barrel expressions because frankly, they're spending a ton of time in the barrel and they're going to pull a lot of a lot of those uh, young barrel, in your case, characteristics out. We're seeing more and more revolution barrel-aged beers coming out throughout the year. They're not simply winter releases. They're being folded out throughout the entire calendar year. How are you sort of managing this new sort of sales calendar in conjunction with uh, what's clearly a very fortified uh, process for choosing barrels, putting things in, and processing? It's really interesting, and it's complicated because it throws a lot more planning and logistics into the, the game plan. Um, makes Marty's job a lot harder. It makes us really think about, you know, what do we think is appropriate to release barrel-aged beer in, in the summertime? Because it's kind of unheard of, really. Normally, uh, barrel-aged releases are associated with, you know, fall, winter, just because they're big beers and they're sweeter, they're stronger. You don't think of drinking a strong beer when it's 100 degrees outside, but I think we flipped the switch on that one uh, what was that, a couple of years ago when we released the Strawberry Jacket? I think that one kind of blew everyone's mind a little bit because it was a straight jacket that was a little bit drier with a, and it was very strawberry forward. We used some really nice uh, strawberry puree and we did a lot of benchtop trialing on it just to really try to dial it in. But, you know, we said it's it's a summer barley wine is what we really said. And we, we wanted this one to be a little more fruit forward than we normally would if it was going to be a fall release. Uh, so we got pretty aggressive with the strawberry on it, and, and it was really cool, and it worked. The important thing is the strawberry was aggressive in it, but leading back to it, when you the finishing flavor of that beer is where it kind of came back as as forward as the strawberry was. It came back to like those nice, like toasty, vanilla, caramely, like toasty, toasted oak character, like in the finish. And I was like. I was really cool with that because I just didn't want it to taste like strawberry juice. And I know Marty was very adamant about that as well. So we, like I said, we did a lot of bench top trialing because we wanted to showcase the, the strawberry in the beer, but we didn't want to eliminate the beer altogether because then we're just making like a strawberry juice. Yeah. And barley wine is one of those sacred styles. It is. It is. Yeah, it's sacred and entirely unsexy, or it was anyway. And strawberry was maybe the the fifth choice uh, that we had. We had trialed, uh, or at least given consideration to blackberry, raspberry, boysenberry, blueberry, really kind of not overused, but done flavors. And uh, we uh, we had done them anyway. And uh, Jim and I had always kind of pulled a strawberry Twizzlers flavor and aroma out of uh, especially the early straight jackets from 2012 to about 2017. You know, obviously no strawberry added or, you know, no licorice added to barrels or anything like that. But there was something from the malt and the oak and the thyme uh, and the alcohol was conspiring to give us this kind of very familiar strawberry Twizzlers aromatic and flavor. And we thought, well, shit, if we've got to do it, you know, we, we were kind of tasked with doing summer barley wine. We're going to release, you know, one or two barley wines this summer. 
course first uh, because I'm you know averse to to new things or at least I was uh, back then. Eyes roll, going, oh geez, what the heck are we gonna do? It was like, okay, well we can do it. We've proven we can do it. Code Switch was a was a rad beer, and we've done some other draft variants that were rad beers that were heavily adjuncted, especially with fruit. So we can do this. Why don't we attempt strawberry? Because we already know that. We're pulling strawberry out of straitjacket already. Uh, why don't we just amp that up? And that way we wouldn't risk having this kind of dissonance um, between competing flavors and aromas. You know, it, as we've gotten more knowledgeable about what we're doing and we've gotten more controlled and more purposeful, we've also allowed ourselves to become more playful because we don't have to get playful and also have that be a, an unacceptable risk. Now we know how to do these heavily adjuncted beers and still do a revolution job of it. Uh, and that's not to say a good or bad job. It's to say like more of a subjective description. Like it's a very revolution approach, which is beer and barrel forward first and foremost. And you can do a highly adjuncted strawberry barley wine and still have it being fucking revolution. And we said, well, this is a flavor that uh, we know pairs well because it's already naturally occurring in the product. We know now that we can employ enzymes for clarification of pectins and we've got a centrifuge and we've got temperature control on our barrels and we've got all these other boxes checked. Now we can really get playful and not have to take a huge risk on it. So Strawberry Jacket was one of the first uh, iterations that uh, July release, I think it was, when uh, Strawberry and Honey Jacket first came out together. Yeah, bring on the adjuncts. Let's let's have a great fucking time making playfully accessible beers uh, that are still done with balance and traditional methods that still let you know this was in a damn barrel and probably for a fuck off long time. It's been a lot of fun and I can't wait to see you know where, where the calendar takes us uh, over the next couple of years because those flavors and aromas are not going to stop. We're still going to be doing really old beers in really expressive barrels and we're going to be designing each ounce of liquid for its ultimate destiny. And that could be a shitload of adjunct or it could just be unadulterated. It's also nice to release a beer when it's not like minus 30 degrees outside. So a, a lot of the fans of our brewery would come and, you know, they would hang out and wait in line and people would be out tasting beers, sharing beers. It was a really cool scene out there. We'd always come and pour samples of different beers we have or something we just canned that day or whatever. And just, you know, just kind of share with all the people and uh, just hang out and talk. And, you know, it was, it was a really fun thing, but it was always normally really cold outside. And it was really actually cool to do it when the weather was actually pretty decent. It happened to be extremely hot. And I was thinking to myself, I can't believe we're releasing two barley wines and it's probably about 98 degrees outside. <laughs> well, you can ask any Florida producer about that, right? Yeah. Very well, true. They've got uh, air conditioning in a lot of their breweries too. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't want to work in a Florida brewery that didn't have air conditioning, but in the Midwest, it's hard to find. I think if you work at a Florida brewery, you probably need a, you know, you have grain silos. You probably need a gold bond silo as well. <laughs> oh, man. And so when you're talking about adjuncts, you've partnered with Dark Matter for some of your coffee supply. And Dark Matter is quite a bit at the forefront of understanding coffee, which itself is a pretty conservative beverage, both from a process standpoint and a consumption standpoint. Tell me a little bit about that partnership and if they are involved in actually some of the sensory 
and what they've kind of contributed to your wealth of knowledge. Just like I could do a podcast about how much I love and appreciate Victor Maravilla, I can do the same about uh, those mad cats over at Dark Matter. Everything that I know and everything I think I know about uh, coffee, I know because of Jesse and Aaron and Noah and Kelly and uh, all those amazing miscreants. Fermentation profile of coffee, origin of coffee, extraction processes. You know, I was amazed at first, probably stupidly, uh, to see just how much coffee looked like hops or barley as far as extraction was concerned. It's the same science. You're using a liquid to pull something out of a solid uh, in most cases. And we, instead of using water to extract coffee, we use beer. In the case of supermassive cafe deeth and even to a still, uh, but maybe a lesser extent in, in regular old cafe deeth, we are making cold brew coffee with barrel-aged stout instead of water. So the same rules that uh, apply to coffee producing uh, or coffee extraction, coffee brewing, um, apply to us as well. And the, the rules are just the same. Uh, we just use a, a different liquid to do the extraction. Dark Matter Coffee for the last several years has been uh, the leader in choosing our coffee. It's not us telling them what we want so much as it is. They come in, we get in the same room, we try a, a couple of beers extracted with a couple of variety or the same beer, essentially. So for the last couple of years, uh, Dark Matters come over and uh, we've gotten in a room, closed the door, and we pop open a couple of crawlers that have uh, been extracting different coffee beans for you know, the same period of time. And we taste through and we talk together uh, as, as one group. Of course, using Dark Matter and letting them lead the conversation. They are the coffee experts. We're the beer people. And we let them kind of tease out what they're getting from these separate extractions. Once we get that baseline, then we start blending. And we kind of like into breakout groups almost you know it sounds corporate but it's 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 really a, a loose jam so we'll we'll taste through we'll blend and we'll come up right there on the spot with the coffee order for a for a particular blend whether it's d star cafe deeth or supermassive cafe deeth they're in the room uh, and they're advising us about what they're teasing from the coffee and just like our barrel supplier they know what we like and they know what we don't like. Even if their coffee wasn't the best pairing for our beers, I would still be inclined to work with them just due to their approach. Yeah, the, what they bring to the table is really amazing. I mean, their their knowledge of the brewing process is great, and they've worked with a lot of other breweries on uh, coffee-infused beers in the past, but they're super familiar with our products. So when they come to the table, they're already bringing coffees that they, in their mind, think or have a very good idea of what's going to work in our beer. So it's very easy to work with them. They're all great. And, you know, we sit down and, and we come to a consensus pretty pretty quickly. You know, we'll have like maybe five different crawlers that Marty's infused with coffee and we're blending them and we're like, yeah, we really like the brightness of this one, but it's a little too acidic. And it's really amazing with coffee. It's like, I mean, they are so knowledgeable about it. Just listening to them talk about coffee is just, I could sit there and listen to them talk forever. Um, but, you know, certain varieties contribute more acidity. Some contribute body. So it's really just like sitting down and really blending beer, of, you know, finished barrel-aged beers for the cuvee. It's like really saying, we want this coffee to be the base of the beer. We like this one. It's way too 
acidic to do on its own, but it adds a little bit of brightness to the entire blend. So, you know, we might end up with three different kinds of coffee that we're using in different proportions. And we, just like we always do with our other beers, we come to a consensus on what makes everyone happy. And if everyone from Dark Matter and everyone from Revolution is pleased with the the results, the uh, opportunity for us to put out the best beer possible is going to be right there on the table and right in front of everybody there. So it's been great working with them. And I mean, we've worked with them on Cafe Deeth, Supermassive, Coffee Eugene, and, you know, we've got a great relationship and we're going to continue that because I, I look forward to learning more about coffee. And I, I would love to go there one day with them where they, uh, I forgot, where was that, Marty, where the base of the volcano where they have those coffee uh, beans growing? Uh, yeah, I want to say that's uh, Guatemala, Guatemala or uh, El Salvador, a particular origin you're speaking of. It's either Guatemala or El Salvador. But yeah, there's a, a volcano where uh, the, the water flows through underneath uh, the volcano to irrigate the the coffee crop uh, and it gives this really unique minerality to I it. I think it's uh, Guatemala, yeah. It's Guatemala, mm-hmm. yeah. San Geronimo Miramar, mm-hmm. I believe, is the uh, is the Yeah, source. there were some uh, recent forest fires there, which was the impetus for the episode that you were referencing. Oh, bummer, man. Fortunately, as of the actual time of recording versus the time of discovery of the fires, they had been mostly put out. Thinking about taking a little bit of a segue back into some of the discussion of barrel program, tell me about the Sanctuary Barrel Program. Uh, yeah, Sanctuary Barrel Program in short could be you know described by my disdain for mopping up perfectly good beer off the floor. <laughs> Before we were routinely sourcing air and liquid tight barrels, maybe not airtight, but certainly liquid tight barrels, you'd get, as Jim was fond of saying, you know, barrels are like people. Some are great and some aren't so great. You know, the not so great ones could be not so great for a variety of reasons. And our one of our least favorite reasons, aside from uh, contaminating the beer, was leaking perfectly good beer onto the floor. Because our barrels aren't stored on a drainage floor, uh, that meant if uh, a barrel was leaking, it was leaking on all of its friends most likely. And it was buried in our case behind about 50 to 70 other barrels that you then had to drop what you're doing, move all of those barrels out of the way, go mop, remove those barrels from the stack, and then put all those barrels back into the stack because the tap room's about to open and most of our barrels are stored in our tap room and drunk people and, uh, or I should say drinking people <laughs> and forklifts don't mix is our chairman, the party Josh Deeth is one to remind us. That's a bad idea. So when a barrel is leaking, we like to take care of it right away. Uh, the best way to do it is just to get rid of it. But rather than dumping the barrel of perfectly good beer, we designed to rescue it. So we took 30 or so leaking barrels uh, of perfectly good beer and uh, got another 25 Heaven Hill barrels. We just started uh, taking one leaky barrel and racking it into a brand new uh, fresh bourbon barrel. By the time that barrel, the leaky barrel was empty, the receiving barrel wasn't quite full. So we had to top it off with the next leaky barrel. So that first barrel got filled mostly with the first leaky barrel and got topped off with the second leaky barrel. But that first second barrel was full before the second leaky barrel was empty So it started filling the second fresh barrel and on and on and on through 
25 to 30 barrels. We got 25 full second barrels on the back end, but each one was its own unique blend of double bourbon barrel aged beer. And we called this the sanctuary after elders, reflections of a floating world, leading track sanctuary. I'm a massive elder fan. We even made a, a pale ale, uh, reflections pale ale uh, for their reflections of a floating world tour that poured in Boston and New York and Chicago. Anyway, super fan over here. So we wound up with uh, 25 second barrels of, of sanctuary barrels uh, of sanctuary beers, each one its own unique blend. Those that had a sugar content that was prepared or worthy of the massive ABV of a double bourbon barrel aged Deepwood beer were served about a year after uh, the second barrels were filled. They were ready to drink. We just wanted to get the most bang for our buck out of that second barrel and then it was ready to go. And then we had a number of you know, dry component leaky barrels that filled second barrels. Now we've got a dry component that's double bourbon barrel aged that were like not fit for human consumption right away. It was way too hot, so much alcohol, not nearly enough supporting sugar. So we just, well, the beer's not going down the drain actively anymore. It's safe. You know, we'll figure out a place to release this, whether it's blended into D-Star straight jacket, you know, where we can just save the beer, you know, whether it's its own thing or not. Uh, but what we found was with alcohol and water evaporating together, the sugar concentration over time in these barrels was increasing. So if a sanctuary barrel was at like four Play-Doh or 4% sugar and 16, 17, 18% ABV, uh, we'll just wait a couple of years and the sugar concentration is going to rise because the sugar stays put, but the water and alcohol evaporate. So now what we're seeing is everything coming out of the sanctuary program or sub program uh, essentially was too dry at one point to be served and now is like six years in two different barrels and the evaporation has made it not only a, a suitable sugar concentration for its ABV, but also six years in two different barrels tends to make a, a pretty compelling drinking experience. We've only done it once. We've only poured through about uh, 50, 55% of all the sanctuary barrels we initially filled. So look forward to, to more of those. But uh, yeah, it was just, uh, it started as a practical approach to not dump perfectly good beer. Uh, and we're about to enter year number six, I think, of not losing a single barrel filled which is, is great for business and commercial reasons. But uh, it, it turns out that if you just manage that after that cool fact, you get some really cool, compelling, unique, one-of-a-kind, never-again-repeatable results that uh, do a fantastic job of supporting these crazy beers that we're putting in cans. None of these beers are spoken for either. They have you know, no purpose. So like Marty said, what the sanctuary really was and how it started was, just like an animal sanctuary, like a little wounded giraffe with a broken leg. It's like, you know, we're saving these barrels because they're leaking. Sometimes the barrel would leak up to a certain point and then it would stop. And then it would get topped off with the next strong barrel aged beer that we were, uh, that had in a fermentation tank. So it really created some really unique blends. And then Marty started transferring those barrels into other barrels and like we said, there's there's no purpose for these beers other than bringing them out for special occasions and creating really unique things. So there's no time frame on them. You know, we're not we don't have a strict production schedule for them. So they just have time to just keep aging and aging and getting more unique and more unique, more uh, 
concentrated. And as Marty said, some of them were drier, but over time, as that water evaporates, that sugar concentration gets higher. And something that was once dry and too boozy to drink on its own is now you're like, it drinks sweet and really unique. And it just has all these like toasted bread, like graham cracker character, like vanilla, toffee, burnt sugar. It's really amazing. And it's really created some really really, really unique beers that you'll never, ever taste and see again. Unfortunately, now that we've got such great uh, barrel suppliers, we don't have any leaky barrels anymore. So for us to, I guess it wouldn't truly be a sanctuary program. It'll be more like a holdback program where we just, uh, we have to keep putting barrels in the, (laughs) either that or I'll just have to go and puncture some holes when no one's looking in the barrels and be like, oh, these barrels are leaking. Got to go to the sanctuary. (laughs) So, like, Jim, I saw you with a drill over there. Yeah, there was a lot there you could, one could extract. In late July, you filled your 6,000th spirit barrel. Marty, do you care about landmarks like that? You posted about it on Twitter, so clearly you, it means something to you. I, I cared enough about it to, to mark the occasion with a tweet. And I'm, I'm not a voracious tweeter. I know this program doesn't just belong to me. It doesn't just belong to Jim. It doesn't just belong to Revolution. This is the people's barrel program if you know if that's my vision for it it's nice to see lines of people and all this internet chatter and and all the 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 comments i get in person uh about our brewery and this program uh, it really belongs to to everybody it's up to me i feel when uh when i notice something that nobody else around me is is seeing. Uh, I'm not going to go up to Jim and go, hey, Jim, we just filled our 6,000 barrels. He's like, well, I'm busy running a brewery. Thanks for telling me. It's good to share those those moments and those milestones uh, and that little bit of insider intel. If it helps our fans and our consumers, and I feel dreadful calling them consumers, but if it, if it helps them I, uh, connect with the program and with the product, great. Uh, because this is this is theirs, whether they've already bought it or not. We're making it for them. Yeah, six thousand barrels is it's not as many as some breweries fill in a single year in this town. But you know, for for us and our program, it's good to know where you are. You know, to kind of celebrate where you've been, remind yourself where you're going. When we first opened the brew pub the first year, how many barrels did we have aging in the basement? Three, maybe. So when you're talking six thousand, that's uh, it's something that, that should be really, you know, uh, kind of celebrated. Yeah. How do you feel about these types of landmarks, Jim? I think it's cool. I mean, if it was the 6,000th barrel that Marty filled that week, I wouldn't think it was that cool. But, you know, <laughs> it, it's more work to do, Marty. <laughs> it, uh, no, I think it's cool and, and it should be celebrated. I, I think things like that. I mean, sometimes people forget that we just started just like Goose Island did. You know, we started as a brew pub. You know, we've grown from there and thinking that we would ever fill 6,000 barrel, bourbon barrels back when we opened the brew pub. I mean, that would probably blow it would have blown our minds back then, you know. So it's cool and it needs to be celebrated because I think sometimes when people see our breweries, they come in and take a tour and it's a big brewery with, you know, fancy new equipment. And they're like, oh, it's just always been like this. And, you know, people miss the whole story behind it. So I think all those little milestones and stepping stones need to be celebrated because it took a it was a long road to, to get there. Now, uh, a little bit about metal before we close down today. So metal found its way into the most notably the Oktoberfest celebration 2019, a lineup I was pretty stoked about until it started raining. So that was Yab, Paul Bear, Resin, Bong Ripper, 
call me a wimp for it raining and me not wanting to celebrate shirtless on the street, but having metal on the street in front of your brewery on Milwaukee Avenue, Chicago, it's on a Friday night. That's a statement. You could have had a lot of other different kinds of music out there and you had something different on Saturday, but on a Friday night, that does make a very, very strong statement. What does that say about the value set of your company and your own sort of interests? Well, like I said before, we're, we're definitely into our, we like our metal. Um, I'm a little older school, like I said. I, I'm, a, I'm a big, big four guy. I love my Anthrax, Metallica, Slayer, and, and Megadeth, but Marty's introduced me to a lot of cool music and uh, Maddie as well. Um, I, I feel like I'm a fuddy-duddy with metal sometimes. I really haven't been listening to a lot of like whole albums. I've What I've been doing lately is just for, like plugging into YouTube and throwing on like a live concert and walking on the treadmill or just hanging out. And I've missed so many good concerts back just because I was too young to go see them. I uh, never got a chance to see Cliff Burton play, sadly. I was, a, I think, a freshman or sophomore in high school when, when he got killed in that bus accident. But um, saw Metallica with Jason Newstead a bunch of times, not so much recently. But yeah, we love our metal at the brewery, and we punish a lot of people with it that don't like it. (laughs) (laughs) That's for sure. Yeah, Um, there is some punitive metal played. We want everybody who works at Revolution to have an opportunity to listen to the music that they like to listen to at work. We're not uh, madmen. If you want to listen to De La Soul, if you want to listen to, you know, whatever it is, awesome. You're working, you know, thank you. Have fun, listen to this music. But if you put on a four hour playlist of something that Jim, Maddie, myself, or uh, whoever else is working doesn't like, uh, there's a high likelihood that you're going to listen to Slayer at full fucking volume on our Bose system mm-hmm. uh, immediately afterwards. Just to like, okay, you had your you had your shot, and we didn't interrupt it. And now to to get back to business, having that lineup scheduled, unfortunately not executed that uh, that rainy stormy Friday night. Having that lineup felt really cool. I remember I was on uh, Highway 1 in a rented Ford Mustang with uh, Josh Deeth. We were heading up to a camping spot in Pfeiffer State Park following the uh, Firestone Walker Invitational Beer Fest in whatever year that was, I guess 2019, driving one of the best driving roads in North America in, uh, in an iconic car on the way to this gorgeous camping spot and Josh says, oh, yeah, Oktoberfest is here. Friday night, we're going to do Metal Night. Uh, and he's asking me, like, oh, yeah, Paul Bearer, Bong Ripper, blah, blah, blah. And I forgot where I was. I was so excited. I'm, I'm driving a reasonably fast car on a, you know, one of my favorite stretches of road in, in North America as a driving enthusiast. And all I can think about is, holy shit, Josh is asking me about my preference for fucking metal bands. Like, fuck, yeah. You know, like I stopped being a brewer for a little, for a moment and and just got totally carried away in, in metal fandom. And that was, that was so rad. That tip of the cap to Jim and Maddie and I, and uh, to a certain extent, Josh and, and a lot of other folks at the brewery who, who love heavy music, uh, who make and package beer, listening to heavy music uh, as a way to cope with the, the hot, the cold, the shit, you know, all, all that negative, nasty shit that goes into uh, making beer for an independent company. 
to be able to come together and go, we're going to fucking celebrate and we're going to be, you know, a metal brewery just for one night, you know, but publicly uh, on Milwaukee, gosh darn Avenue, you know, that was heartening. We're going to get more chances. That rain is not going to wash away our opportunity uh, to have fun and, and listen to, to live heavy music uh, at a revolution event. I'd prefer to see that at the brewery though, rather than then on Milwaukee Avenue, we get that stage going behind the brewery again. That's going to be where it's at. Yeah, we don't we don't want any rainouts or anything else. Yeah, metal on metal, right? Hell yeah, hell yeah, excellent. In closing, do you have any kind of final thoughts or reflections for our audience? Yeah, we're drinking VSOJ now. Which oh, we didn't a, even do Viet. That's all right. Uh, oh dang. Oh dang. Uh, oh dang. It's, it's a blend of one to five year old. English barley wines, it's fuck off old. It's sweet, it's oaky, it's brilliantly clear. Uh, it's liquid bread crust and oak and vanilla and uh, all manner of poetry, but it's still not anything overdone. Uh, this is, uh, this is a, a great celebration for us in liquid form. And thank you, uh, anybody who, who came out and secured theirs. I know it wasn't easy to get. We tried to make it accessible, but uh, demand was uh, was flatteringly high. And mm-hmm. uh, for this style of beer, that's incredible. Yeah, yeah, it's rad. Yeah, we we truly appreciate uh, everyone that comes to the brewery, all our fans and people that enjoy our beers, um, because we work really hard to try to put out the best product we can, and you know, try to make it as compelling as possible. And we really, really appreciate everyone that comes out. It's so fun to talk with everyone and just kind of get their perspective on things, see what they think about the beers and just kind of hang out. I mean, that's really who we are. And we kind of miss that with COVID going on. Like I said, it was really cool. And we used to be able to hang out in that line and just kind of chat with people and enjoy beers. And it's just cool to see people into what, what you're doing. It makes you feel really good about what you do. And sometimes when you have a rough day and you're dealing with a lot of crazy stuff, mechanical issues, scheduling issues, like material shortages, things like that, that you have to work around, it it makes it all worthwhile to see people enjoy beer. And that's like, when I go back to thinking of why I really got started in brewing is even my first batch of homebrew, I remember I brewed it. It was a like an English bitter that was dry hopped with Styrian Golding hops. I was trying to kind of recreate like a honker's ale at home. Looking back at it now, it was probably pretty shitty. But uh, I remember pouring it for my friends and they were like, wow, this is great. I can't believe you made this. And it really just like just making something that makes people happy, I think is really cool. And you see people enjoy it and they're into it and... I think that every once in a while we need to do that just to keep us, keep ourselves, I wouldn't say necessarily say grounded, but just appreciate the ability for us so that to do this for a living, you know, it's like really cool. It's like sometimes people unfortunately have jobs that they really, you know, it's really rough and, you know, it's a tough job and they don't like it that much and they have to do it every day. But when I look at it, I'm so fortunate and I'm sure Marty would feel the same way that we get to come to work every day and do something we love and produce something that's cool and that people like. And I I'm, I feel so fortunate just reflecting on it now. I mean, it gives me goosebumps thinking about it, remembering that first time of like pouring a beer for somebody that you made. You're like, I made this, you know, I worked hard on this. You didn't see anything that went into it. You just get to enjoy it. But, you know, it's really cool and it's a cool process and it's hard. It's challenging. But it's so rewarding, I can't even put it into words, really. 
I'm just stoked that uh, I get to do this with Jim and Josh and Maddie and, and a, you know, a couple other dozen highly talented, intelligent, hardworking, passionate people. And with a with the Deepwood program, uh, I, I get an outsized level of credit for this. Uh, the, the way that I see, uh, at least especially the Deepwood program, is festival bookers have told everybody there's going to be a show. And the roadies have built a stage and they've plugged in the amps. And other people have signed the contracts and they've done the thankless jobs. Uh, all I have to do is step out there in front of a wall of barrels uh, or a, a wall of marshals and hit E as is, is theatrically and as passionately as I can. And then all the credit comes to me, uh, which is unfair. It's fun, but it's, it's not the whole story. It's not anywhere close to the whole story. I love being able to have a hand in producing uh, these compelling beers that uh, seemingly get people excited. But uh, my secondary job and my, my real passion here is to give credit where it's due, and that is to the literally dozens of other people uh, that bring these beers to fruition. Um, and it's, it's for them more so than anybody else that we are going to continue to work to make the most compelling and the funnest and the most balanced and the most extreme beers we possibly can because we're here to make punk rock and rock and roll and, and not pop music. And if, if someday we can only fill a, a college arena, uh, arena and not a full outdoor stadium show, and so be it. Uh, we're going to do what, uh, what we think is compelling and we want to do. Uh, and thank you, Chicago, and everybody else who, who comes out to Chicago to buy these beers. You are our reason for existing. That's it. Absolutely. Thank you, everybody. Jim, Marty, thank you so much for joining us on Heavy Hops. Thank you for having us, guys. This has been a blast. Hell yeah. Cheers.